You're listening to Girls Gone Canon, covering his dark materials. Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, reads his dark materials, the book series, episode 18. The Amber Spyglass, chapters 8 through 10, I am one of your hosts, Eliana. And I am another one of your hosts, Chloe, and I'm not I'm not trying to sell out my girlfriend here, but I have to tell you all that Eliana really forgot it was her role for like one second. And usually I say, Eliana, you know, you have to introduce this one, right? But for one second, Eliana had no clue where she was and who you people were. She was like, what? What are we doing? I was like, what is this silence? What is this void? <laughs> and then I was like, oh, uh, it's on me. I'm... I'm the one who has to lead us. <laughs> Shit. Uh, I was like Will. Void. I was like Will in this episode. I was like, all right, I gotta, I I'm gotta be seen. <laughs> uh, new void. Who dis the amber spyglass story? Oh That's what this is. That is what this is. And I am excited for another week, another episode this month. Two and one due to scheduling conflicts. So enjoy this one. We'll go back to one at a time probably next month, so don't uh, get too yeah. crazy, kids. Uh, chapters 8 through 10. Chapters 8 through 10. That's vodka, upriver, and wheels. Eliana, do you want to tell the folks at home what our spoiler policy is on these bad boys and how Chloe will break it? I mean, that's just how it is, right? I know people... <laughs> if you're here, I assume you've listened to our other episodes, but... Those other episodes cover books that we are going to discuss in this episode. For example, Northern Lights slash The Golden Compass, book one, and book two, The Subtle Knife. We're going to talk about anything that happened in those books up to this point in the series. And we are going to do our almost best <laughs> to keep spoilers from anything else that happens in the rest of this book or in the books of dust and the novellas and uh we'll we'll, we'll play it by ear when it comes to the television show uh <laughs> and keep those in the dust discussion which happens after we talk about these chapters and what's going on um live yes and Look, if you haven't finished the book yet, you're not going to get spoiled on anything big by listening to our main episodes. It's the discussion that comes after, and I, the temptress of the discussion, when I rise from the dusty ashes, will spoil pretty much every other fucking thing under the sun, right? Books of Dust, La Belle Sauvage, The Secret Commonwealth, and of course, the novellas, which we have covered extensively on our Patreon at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. Uh, we'll, we'll keep all the spoilers to that at the very end, so you can tune out at that time if you're not quite prepared to get dusty. And as Chloe said, you can find, I mean, an in-depth discussion of our thoughts on the novellas on our Patreon. And also, we have covered La Belle Sauvage already. If you would like, you can check those episodes out on our Podbean. They're all already up there. and. You know, speaking of things on Patreon, once a month, we do a special episode for our patrons in the Stranger Tier and above. That's $5 and up. And so usually, every other month, we'll do like one A Song of Ice and Fire 
episode and then the next month we'll do a historic materials episode but you know what because of the way things fell you got two historic materials episodes this month and also we wanted to try and do something a little different right um you know i was i was riding the high of leo season and i was like eh, the world is our oyster we can do anything we want so we're doing a different <laughs> different children's book different young adult uh book for patreon this month I know it's a Virgo season yes. now. Okay, I understand. It was a tumultuous. It was a tumultuous transition, as anyone will tell you. But this idea was born during the fires, the very yes. embers, the glowing embers of Leo season, and I'm I'm excited. It's another fantasy heroine, right? Another mm-hmm. young protagonist. It's Ella Enchanted or Eliana Enchanted. It, it's uh, Ella Enchanted. I'm, <laughs> it's Eliana Enchanted, and I'm Prince Clar. I mean. This is just a preview of the episode. Look, if you have not read Ella Enchanted, it's a really fun book. Mm-hmm. There's a couple in the series, uh, but the first book is uh, loosely based on Cinderella with some really fun twists and turns. And I love it. I loved it when I was a kid. We're going to talk about in the episode the nostalgia we have for this yes. story. Maybe even a little. Uh, Eliana hasn't seen yet the movie, but I have some nostalgia over both book yes. and also movie and how mad I was about some of the adaptive choices, which if you've been listening to us about the Golden Compass, I'm sure you'll know. Yeah, and I mean, like, exactly. So so it kind of really goes well, because we also at one point, right, watched the Golden Compass movie and discussed some of those choices. I don't know, there was just like this time, I guess, in the aughts where they were like, you know what, let's just take all these stories that Eliana really loved growing up and let's fucking mangle them. Uh, it just kept happening to you, didn't it? That's so sad. It did, and I ref- and to me, but- I refused to watch those movies because I was like, "Why would I do this to myself?" And you know, until I guess adulthood, when I decided to cover <laughs> these books, was very good at uh, avoiding watching those. God, I so get that, you know. And uh, it's weird because as a kid, you don't remember some of those failures. Like as a kid, I remember my mom got me. Uh, from like the Walmart movie bin, the five dollar copy of the Golden Compass. It was on sale, and my mom was like, "Oh, here, you might like this movie." <sighs> and I saw the movie when I was younger when it came out. I I hadn't read the books as we've discussed, but I saw the movie first, and I had no clue that there were books that were even a thing yeah. until you know, as an adult, when I was told many times, "Please read them." So, don't judge a movie by its cover, right? Because it, it could still lead you there in the afterlife. Yeah, I was led. Yeah, and I mean, again, the young actor who does Lyra in the movie, she does a great job. I think she does yeah. a oh yeah a good job. Like a lot of things, there were a lot of things that were like, I guess, okay. <laughs> I I don't yeah, know yet. And about I do Ella feel Enchanted. bad. Uh, well, and I think like Ella Enchanted now as an adult too. I think you can walk into it with a certain, maybe a certain different approach of watching it like oh this is a adaptation of the kids novelization i loved and it has some core ideas but also kind of misses the boat you know but that's also what a kids movie is i guess it seemed like it did based on the trailers also i just like you know not to be like oh but my hud casting i just didn't anne hathaway was too old for that role yeah i didn't imagine her in it and you know yeah i agree well, this is just a sampling. Yeah, right, this is just a sampling. We, we've we've episode. gone off. We we have lost. Sorry, we have lost sorry. Our, uh, way just Girls now, sorry. gone off. Gone awry. Girls gone off. <laughs> yes. So please 
tune into that episode, patrons in the stranger tier, the $5 and above tier. You can find that over at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon by the end of this month, August 2021. And that's not the only thing left in August for Girls Gone Canon fans on Patreon. If you are a patron in the Thunder tier, the 10 US dollar tier or above, you can come hang out in Discord where we talk about everything and anything in 30 plus channels all day long, sometimes streaming games or hanging out with people in the voice chat. But on August 28th, this coming Saturday from 2 to 4 Eastern Standard Time, Thunder patrons and above will be having brunch slash happy hour, which is basically where we hang out for two hours. Uh, we do This month we're doing a potluck presentation themed on congratulations, which is just a big hurrah for everything during this ridiculous pandemic that we haven't really been able to celebrate with our patrons and they're presenting slideshows on it. It's just going to be really fun and we play some Jackbox games after and there are some free prizes that happen and just all sorts of goodies. So come hang out. Yeah, a bunch of people. I mean, you, the listener, might have celebrated some sort of milestone over the past, like, over year, you know, year and a half of our lives, of the pandemic, that perhaps you were not able to celebrate in the way that you would have hoped because, again, of the pandemic. So, congratulations. Uh, please imagine uh, the scene in Evangelion where everyone goes, congratulations, congratulations, oh congratulations, <laughs> congratulations. I hope that's what you're uh, going to be theming the slideshow on, Eliana. Well, we can't wait to see you if you get to come hang out with us. And uh, I think that's it for housekeeping, right? Other than that and other than our Ella Enchanted, Eliana Enchanted tangent, I'm ready to jump into the Amber Spyglass with these three chapters. And there's some good three chapters. They are uh, no Lyra, very non-Lyra-centric chapters. It is. Yeah, that's very true. Lyra's like there. Everyone's like... Trying to make their way to her. Yeah. Especially after, you know, we ended those dream sequences, right? So now everyone's trying to converge, building up to that, and it's exciting. And so we start out with vodka. Uh, Chloe's Ooh, Chloe's nice favorite. Accent. Thank you. I th- I guess good. if I were I like if it. I were being proper, I would pronounce it right. It's supposed to be like vodka. More of like a W yeah. sound. But Wod. 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 Anyway, the header the header quote we have here is, I have been a stranger in a strange land, and that comes from the book of Exodus in the Bible. I love that. I know that you have tons to talk to us about Exodus later. I love the chapter structure we open with. These three chapters specifically have a great run with a lot of great parallels running throughout them. And this is some of my favorite will progression in the novel, right? Mm, yes. Without Lyra finally kind of standing on his own. And structurally speaking, this brings me back to a lot of what we went through in The Subtle Knife. While Will has definitely picked up his father's mantle, it also feels like Will has taken up Lee Scoresby's mantle from The Subtle Knife, right? As far as his adventures, it's structured a lot like a Lee Scoresby chapter. He's going on a mission looking to help Lyra. He comes across a holy, I'm quoting this, air quoting, a holy man who turns out to be a bit shady. He lies to them about his identity and uh, his purpose. He drinks spirits with this man, and he learns enough information to finally move on to his next chapter and his next part of his adventure. Even down to the environment, right? It feels like Lee's adventures 
Hey, they're both murderers. Uh, But the biggest difference, of course, comes to a couple of things. Lee had already lived plenty of these stories, right? By the time we see Lee doing this in The Subtle Knife on his own, this is kind of uh, the usual. For Will, this is the beginning Mm -hmm. of his adventures like this. It's a coming-of-age chapter for him. And uh, not only is it a beginning for Will, but it's the end for Baruch, as we're about to read. (sighs) Sorry, I know I'm hurt too. Will, in these first two chapters, learns what grief and rebuilding means, right? Not only with Balthamos losing his loved one, especially after starting to process and understand his own grief and trauma of his father dying, and losing Lyra, his only friend. Uh, <laughs> all of that ages you, right? And yeah. he, he ages a lot in these two chapters. He has to grow really quickly. Absolutely. And he's already, you know, had to grow very quickly earlier on, right? Because he kind of took on this parentified child role. But then, as you said, here he is again. And now he's he's in unfamiliar territory. And we really see Will. It's interesting because he, he takes inspiration this time from Lyra, as you said. And we're going to see that that happen. I, I just love how they inspire one another. I really do. What does it mean? What does it mean? Well, before we do that, we're gonna we're gonna get set. Don't uh, do this to me. I know. I'm not ready for this pain. I'm in so much pain. I was already like in pain last time, and then we get to the aftermath of it. Right? I was like, "What the fuck?" He opened the door. <laughs> this is why died. we literally. Like this is how it's gonna be. You know, when one of us goes, when we're still covering all these books eighty years from now. I mean, we might be. Well, Balthamos felt the death of Baruch the moment it happened. He cried aloud and soared into the night air over the tundra, flailing his wings and sobbing his anguish into the clouds. And it was some time before he could compose himself and go back to Will, who was wide awake, knife in hand, peering up into the damp and chilly murk. Will is worried that there's danger... Yeah, so Balthamos is flying around, and he's very upset, right? Like, he's flying up, down, across, etc. He'll he'll fly into the, the sky, and then he'll go to the ground, sobbing, upset, and be pinned to the ground in grief. But then suddenly, he'll remember Baruch's kindness, and, like, fly out back into the sky, and then come back down, and, and be like, Will, I promise, I'm gonna, I'm gonna protect you, I'm gonna watch you tirelessly. And then he'll be like, oh god, Baruch used to watch me tirelessly, and fly back into the sky upset again. Just, like, setting himself off, right? Like, he's just in so much fucking pain and, like, shock. He's in shock. Yeah, it's Uh, sad. Yeah, it's really awful. And, like, imagine, God, imagine having the power to do that, to be able to fly and throw yourself into the sky and then throw yourself back down. And, of course, Will is, like, he's not trying to be unkind, like you said, but he's just like, hey, you know, I know there are bad people out there looking for us. Right now, buddy, and you're just kind of flying that signal right now for those bad people, and I can't do anything about it. And if specters get you and eat you, I can't go up there. Please or come down angels, here. other angels, yeah. Other angels, yeah, exactly, Metatron. So Will gets him kind of to calm down, and he's like, I need you to be strong like Baruch was because uh. we still have to get to Lyra. It's very important. It's very painful. All of this is very painful for reasons that will be also discussed later in the discussion because I feel like there are other sad connections. But in the meanwhile, Balthamos straightens up and he's like, okay, okay, you're right. I will. I'll take first guard. You sleep. 
and by the morning he's finally sobered out of his shock. He declares he'll stay willingly and cheerfully with Will, or cheerfully in Balthamos's way, of course. Yeah. And he says he'll guide him to Lyra and take him to Asriel. I have lived thousands of years, and unless I am killed, I shall live many thousands of years more. But I never met a nature that made me so ardent to do good, or to be kind, as Baruch's did. I failed so many times, but each time his goodness was there to redeem me. Now it's not. I shall have to try without it. Perhaps I shall fail from time to time, but I shall try all the same. Oh, Balthamos! It's very beautiful. Poor Balthamos. And poor Baruch. This is... Yeah, poor Baruch. I just... Again, it's real painful, but it's also really earnest, right? That he's willing to, like... He's like, well, the best I can do is use his absence to be better. For him. By him and through him. And just, like, to... You know, to to live in eternity without Baruch. So sad. And it's just so sad for him. I'm glad that they, you know, continue the arc of his grief, right, into the next chapters um, and don't let it go because, you know, they've been together thousands of years. There's no way he can get over it so quickly. There's a part of me that wonders, like, you know, as he's, again, he's going up there and he's calling for Baruch and it's just so sad, you know, not just yelling his name in pain, but, like, the logic of it right obviously baruch's not coming back but like that 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 denial and grief and just also that um part of me wonders if when he's flying up there and looking around is he seeking you know a particle or something of baruch i mean that's all they are right it's just dust stardust that's all the stars all are just stardust He's just looking around at all the other pieces of them in the sky, wondering, is that you? Is that piece of you? Almost like how later the seed pods get scattered in the Mulefa chapter. Oh, yeah. Um, You know, all those particles, those are like pieces of them, too, and of their culture and of their people. And it's like he's just hoping he can grasp one tiny speck of him in the sky. Like Ashley Simpson's pieces of me. Also, I do want to say, like, there was a movie version of a song of hers on that album that was very good. On, on wait, there. on, on, undiscovered. Wait, on there was the a movie Golden Compass. Stephen Street. No. Oh, no. sorry. On that Confused. album, Pieces of Me. Oh, by huh. Ashley Simpson. She had a movie. It was called Undiscovered, and she was in it with Stephen Strait, you know, from Sky yeah, yeah, High yeah. and the Expanse. Yeah. Uh, notably from Sky High. I, I think of him and, as from Sky High, actually. <laughs> uh, War and Peace from Sky High yeah. is a big piece, a big War and Peace of my, yeah. uh, you know, my coming of age story. War and Peace of here. Me. In, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's your original Sandra Clegane. Listen, this is how I deal with pain, through humor, you know, and I'm still real sad here about the death of uh, Angel Lover. This is very sad. Yeah. It, My poor Baruch. It really, really is. Our, our poor Baruch and Balthamos. And Will, Will tries to comfort him, you know, best he can. Will's not the best at comforting, I guess. He says Baruch would be proud <laughs> of him. And Balthamos then instead soars to the skies. Uh, to scout for them as they walk across the marshland. And Balthamus, of course, is holding back a little bit of his fears from Will, because it's not just Baruch's death that's weighing on him, but the fact that 
in that whole kerfuffle, uh, Metatron has now firmly imprinted Will's face in his mind when they narrowly escaped. Also, not just his face, but his nature as well. That part that maybe Lyra would call his demon. And Balthamus knows that he has a he, he's gotta tell Will about this at some point, but it's just too difficult. All right, like his his lover for thousands of years has just died. So I think I'm I would cut Balthamus some slack there. Yeah, that is, a, and it's a big thing to tell him that like, hey, you're kind of marked forever now, buddy. <laughs> uh, so we'll get to that soon. But Will, Will's been freezing right this entire time, so he's like, it's quicker to walk. It's going to be warmer to walk. I I just am going to go. He heads down a pothole, ruddy path with the horizon, never seeming to get closer. He's like, this is forever taking. Later, when the light is brighter, Balthamos says that it's only a half day's walk ahead till they get to a wide river in a town with boats that are tied off to a wharf. They might be able to get passage through that village and then on to the town. Balthamos promises he'll translate as his demon, and they walk on. I want to fly quickly. I thought it was interesting that Balthamus says that he had learned many human languages and that angels don't inherently like understand or know every human language. He had to like I don't know go on some fucking Duolingo app or whatever. So I I just thought that was interesting that he had to actually learn it. And it's doesn't like miss me that it's parallel in a way to the tenth chapter, right? To yeah, Lefa there with Mary Malone. And learning the language and that, like, obviously angels had learned the language somehow. Yeah. Um, and the ways of the people enough. And we see them able to replicate demons because obviously True. they're made of the same old stuff pretty easily and, like, kind of assimilate. And whether that's just from their heavenly powers or if it's just from, you know, living thousands of years and learning these traditions and cultures and passing them on. I guess what else is he going to do, right? You... You're alive thousands of years, there's no internet or TV. Might as well do something. And yeah, I mean he's not he doesn't do the best job pretending to be Will's demon, but he does a job. Yeah, he does. <laughs> the village they come to is shabby with paddocks of reindeer and barking dogs. It's apparent the village is recently flooded, the ground is wet and heavy, but the most curious part of the place is that he felt like he was losing his balance and that the buildings were leaning two or three degrees out of vertical. He wonders if there was an earthquake here, seeing a church with a badly cracked dome, and the dogs and reindeer are looking mangy up close with thin coats. So Balthamos, you know, again, he gets his first chance to show off his demon skills, which is like, I don't know, it's a B, you know, if I had to give it a grade. Right? for But for effort <laughs> later on. For effort, he gets, like, I don't know, a C. Minus. Uh, first, he goes with a white dog right now, and then a sparrow sitting on Will's shoulder. So he's kind of, like, showing that he's... Will's a child, right? Not yet a settled demon. The men they come across find it believable enough and move on, and Balthamos tells Will to keep moving and don't look them in the eye. The men lose interest in Will as he activates his Will Perry superpower of invisibility. Kind of. But a man calls to them from a house on the road. Balthamo says it's a priest and tells him to turn and bow, which Will does. The priest has a crow demon on his shoulder and takes everything about Will in and then asks him where he came from in a foreign language. And Balthamos translates. Will tells him he speaks English and the priest conveniently also speaks English and welcomes him to their no longer perpendicular colonoi. I thought this was so interesting. I love the entrance to this little village. 
I do have to hearken back there to the dogs that look mangy, right? Mm. Uh, and really thin-coated. That's such a classic Pullman use in this part of the book, right? Like, that is just such classic Pullman kind of giving you that something's off about this city because of global climate change. Yeah. Look at the dogs and their thin, mangy coats that aren't like normal dogs and something's not quite right here. We just see it in other stories of his that are related to this. We see it in the Books of Dust used and we've seen it used in some of the visions earlier in these books, right? In the last couple books of whether it's uh, in enslaved human masses basically beneath industrial buildings and such and yada yada. So it, it's of course classic metaphors, classic metaphors happening here. But where we are geographically and where we're about to get revealed to be is in the His Dark Materials equivalent of Russia or Muscovy territory, right, in Tartarland. And this in a moment gets revealed through the priest because he introduces himself as a father in Russian, Atyets. And I love that there's really not a religious connotation that's like a modern version of this, just it's used as father every day usually. But Pullman has kind of translated it that translated it into his little weird geographical map right because as we know his his world isn't lyra's world isn't exactly like ours it's it's weirdly similar but some some weird different things about it so geographically will is in muscovy territory bordering tartary with western siberia and the himalayas kind of to the southeast of him which makes sense because we get to the bears soon and their voyage southeast to central asia themselves mm -hmm. I was hoping to find something way more exact. Like, I was hoping to be, like, unearthing this heap of knowledge of, like, this is what Pullman was talking about, about a city with leaning towers or a village with leaning towers and, you know, the, the whole oppression from the government and religion. I didn't find anything exactly like that. But I did find some leaning towers, like the Tower of Neviansk and the Tower of Yekaterinburg, or even the leaning Tower of Suyumbike, which actually has a really sad like folklore legend associated with it that the Tatar princess Suyumbike, she was the interest of Ivan the Terrible, who wanted to marry her and rule her people. And she was like, fine, build me a huge tower with seven layers as a wedding gift. And if you don't build a seven-story tower, I won't marry you. If you do, I will. But when the tower was completed, she climbs to the top, looks down at her people and home, and she's like, I'm overwhelmed with emotion for them. I can't marry this dude. And she just, like, jumps. Damn. And she dies. Yeah. So that was crazy. Crazy bit of folklore. Uh, but the thing I did find that is a little unrelated but is related, I think, especially with some of this talk of demons and traditions and cultures being passed around, is that this is a real place. This little village is a real place in Belgorod Oblast, a federal subject of Russia, and the Belgorod region plays a really important role in a wedding tradition in Russia of the Russianic, and it's a ritual cloth embroidered with symbols and cryptograms of the ancient world. I found, like, I was like, when I read this, I was like, oh, cryptograms, symbols, now we're talking his dark materials passed down through Eastern Slavic rituals like weddings and funerals, and in the book A Language of Their Own, Roshniki are mirrors of a nation's cultural ancestral memory. The ritual ornaments preserve archaic magical signs, symbolism of colors and artistic folk styles, Kozak Baroque and Rococo, as well as classicism and 
all of which continue to amaze and they're super cherished to this day and they're a language of their own. Uh, they've been forgotten but not lost. And I thought this hmm. seemed like such a really sacred part of this culture from here, from Kolodnoi. Uh, the needle has its own energy. It, it resembles almost acupuncture and like the the intention behind the needle. Or in our book here, we have the intention behind the blade that Will wields, right? The color of their thread has sacred meaning even. It's usually red, representing life, and it's the main color used generally. It's given to a baby at birth, this blanket fabric is, and it follows the person throughout their life. It's hmm. even used in a funeral service and a wedding service. And it's almost as if the Russianic is like a scrapwork blanket, a patchwork blanket perhaps, almost like a demon in this hmm. analogy that, that they're given this piece this piece of their their ancestors and this piece of themselves from birth that shows their journey and it's interesting in a way that will is being like brought into this culture for these two chapters where he's living his life journey right on these pages he's starting his big life journey this is a big step for him on his own to go find that woman he loves and he doesn't have his own patchwork demon he has balthamos yeah he does. He he's got like a he like Lyra. They kind of have this patchwork family that they're creating. Yeah, this chosen family. They're patchworked together. They are, and I I like what you've pulled out. I was kind of wondering is the the per lack of perpendicularness right of uh, Kolonoi and you, these leaning things. It almost reminds me a little bit of what we saw at uh, Chittagatse with yeah. <laughs> the crumbling tower that uh kills a bunch of kids. And <laughs> left that one out of the show. <laughs> uh, and I, I mean, I guess I can see why. And then uh, what you're talking about here, right? Like this this thing that is given to like a child that follows them as they grow up, right? With all of these symbols and, and representations, it kind of reminds even like of Lyra and her alethiometer. Yeah, you know, connected to her this whole time and is very much uh, related to to being able to interpret symbols and symbolism, so. Yeah, I really love that. I love just uh, cryptograms. As soon as I read cryptograms hmm. in some of the research, I was like, oh my god, it's a, it's almost like an alethiometer. Yeah. Which is not dissimilar from the knowledge that demons seem to have, which in that Lou, I guess, is not dissimilar from your gut, right? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, the demons themselves, they're also a symbolic language, too. Will introduces himself and tells the priest that he's going south to find his family. The priest offers him refreshment, and the man's crow demon begins to curiously examine Balthamos. Balthamos is like, I cannot be seen, and turns into a mouse and scurries inside of Will's shirt. <laughs> Ooh, will. Uh, adorable. And really gives a new meaning to guardian angels, right? Like, now that Will has adopted this angel as his demon, I actually think it's kind of a weirdly intimate experience, that they're going through here like yeah you know your demon's a part of you and obviously both of them just experienced really great heavy traumatic losses uh many several and that they're both being really physically and emotionally close to each other in this time even when they don't necessarily want to be common trope right like being forced yeah. to be in super close contact with each other when they're not at all intimate don't know each other barely know anything about each other other than just like Oh, cool. All these people you love just died, too. That <laughs> sucks. Just different stages of grieving. Yeah. And, I mean, this air 
is like it's an era of forcing them to deal with and confront with this trauma maybe not deal with it totally but at least confront what's happening with what they've recently faced in their grief processing stages and their understanding starts to grow of one another and i think it's significant like just like when talking about the russianic will hasn't necessarily had that experience of having a demon so in him having to rely on a connection with balthamos uh, and trust him right it's just like putting trust in lyra that he had to do like he had no clue if she was actually trustworthy or not he had to rely on his gut and here he is too he's challenging himself to rely on balthamos that's a great point. And that's an opportunity for real growth for Will, right? Because growing up, he didn't have anyone to really trust. No adults, no friends. So this is something new for him. Something else that's new for him is literally this world. The chapter opens with I'm a stranger in a strange land, a line uh, that you may or may not recognize has also been adopted by Robert Heinlein as a title for one of his books, but it does come from Exodus as the quote cites, and I believe it's something that Moses said, which inspires the name of like his son. And in Jewish and and Christian religion, Moses is a figure who has been, you know, he was originally passed off as Egyptian, sent down the river, right? Um and then like adopted, and then he thinks he's Egyptian, finds out, oh my god, no, I'm adopted and I'm I'm not I'm not Egyptian. I'm John. I'm a Starkarian. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. He's like, excuse me. Um, and so it, it's funny because like it, you can see parallels with Will's story, right? As he's trying to masquerade as someone from Lyra's world right now, and of course, Will is something kind of like a savior-like figure, I guess. You know, it's not like mm-hmm. anyone's been talking about prophecies about him with this knife or going between worlds or anything um savior like figure in this like war about the intellectual enslavement of all peoples but whatever there's a there's a couple of other exodusy things that we'll talk about later this chapter too yeah yeah he is kind of the chosen one you know they say well, one the of chosen the chosen two. ones the chosen a chosen, the chosen two. two it doesn't have quite as much of a ring to it does <laughs> it you know the chosen two <sighs> the priest introduces himself and names himself as Atiat Samyan, which means Father Samyan, uh, and his actual name is Samyan, he explains, and his father was Boris, so his true name is Samyan Borisovich. He asks Will's father's name, saying, you would be Will Ivanovich. He asks where Will came from as well as where he's going. Will tells him some truths. He says, my father's a soldier. We were exploring the Arctic, but something happened, and we got lost in a great fog. So now I plan to meet him south. I have to say I'm so proud of Will for, like, thinking of Lyra, holding her in his mind throughout all this, and uh, learning from what they dealt with in the subtle knife, right? Because they dealt with accidentally telling people too much information, maybe not trusting other people (laughs) enough. You know, blah, 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 lots of back and forth. But here, uh, and of course, he's thinking constantly, she's the better liar, it's in her name, you know, Lyra puts the lies in Lyra, I'm not as good, but he pulls through, he withholds enough information that he doesn't put himself at risk, uh, and, and it does feel a little off-putting. You can tell he's off-put that he's like, wow, this guy's kind of pushy, just keeps asking more and more details about who I am, where I'm from, Are you, am I a witch, am I Egyptian, am I awful, am I evil, am I a, am I a pansier born? 
for me, it, it felt like he was asking, like, there are weird vibes from this guy from the beginning. It feels like he's asking, are you alone, child? Is there yeah. anyone you can trust? And, um... Oh, gobbler vibes, yes. Yeah, gobbler, but predatory... We'll, we'll come back to that. Yeah. And then oh. also... <laughs> also Check um, this box, that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Put a pet market. Um, and when you were say talking about him lying, yeah, it's it's also very different, right, from Lyra's. Lyra can Lyra can just spin anything. She's like, oh yeah, I'm Lizzie, and all these things about me, and like makes up names, and there's like a whole story behind it. Will has to lean on what he already knows, and I think it's a uh, it's interesting and kind of um painful right probably for him to be telling these kinds of lies because what he's drawing on is these really raw memories right he's talking about his father and his memory and i'm looking for my father this was his story like a few chapters ago last book now it's not he found his father his father's dead yeah. and he's just spitting it <laughs> yeah now he's just being like forced to remit it all over again yeah like oh and he's Poor Will. He has to shove it down right now for this conversation. Yeah. Uh, and Semyon is really surprised to hear of a soldier from England. He's like, what wars are going on there? Uh, <laughs> uh, and he's like, oh, well, I haven't had such interesting visitors in a while. And he welcomes Will, calls for his housekeeper, an older woman, Lydia Alexandrovna, who brings hot tea to Will and a saucer of jam to sweeten it. But unfortunately, those berries are bitter and sickly, and the tea itself is as well. However, Will drinks it, and the priest keeps trying to physically assess him. Again, uncomfortable. And Will asks him why the buildings in this village slope, changing the topic of conversation. And ex he explains to Will it was foretold in the Apocalypse of St. John that the rivers would flow backward. Of course, the Apocalypse of St. John is the Book of Revelations or the Revelations to John. Rivers don't necessarily flow backwards in the Revelations. They turn to blood, they dry out, they turn to magma at one point. It's pretty metal, as we've talked about. But they are representative of the water of life, which feels kind of significant here. And the waters, I believe, do flow backwards when Jesus is baptized hmm. earlier on in the Bible than that, you know. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I didn't realize that. I was kind of just like looking through. I didn't find that, but I did did refine that one and thought that was interesting, especially since we talk about this as like Will's big journey and he is kind of being baptized with vodka here, uh, right? He's getting his Eucharist in this chapter. I guess so, yeah. And, and you know, to connect to the revelations and, and John, I mean, his dad's name is John, John Perry. Yep. He's a holy man. And John man. said he yeah. was going to have to take up that mantle too. Yeah. John told him what he had to do with that knife and told him his prophecy, right? I mean, he did kind of give him a prophecy in a way that you have to take this knife and you have to use it. I don't know. That's interesting to think of. I, I didn't think of that because of John. That's really interesting. And Will, you know, Joppery. he's- Yeah, Joppery. And Will's like, you know what? I know your dad dead, but I'm going to just, I'm going to have my own little teenage- tween rebellion and i'm not gonna do what you said i'm gonna go find my friend it does feel <laughs> like in the last two books obviously we had a lot more of lyra and, and this mm -hmm. book we have it too i mean i'm not discounting obviously this book is like lyra eve lyra eve lyra eve lyra eve eve Eva. does that mean eve, eve ill are they saying mm. evil 
Um, but like, I, I obviously sorry, we know Lyra has the Lyra Eve thing going on, which should only mean if Will is being paired with Lyra, we're going to see him as also having some, uh, some adamantium aspects. Yeah, absolutely. Adam, Adam like qualities. And you know, you're talking about the rivers flowing the other way. I, I just wanted to share this one fact that there's like a line or something in one of the medians in our world. And when you cross it, uh, toilets swirl in opposite directions. Oh. Not, oh. All, not all toilets swirl in the same direction. Like there's this line. I don't, I don't remember where it is, but the toilets will start swirling the other direction. So that's what I have for you. I don't know if that's related, but I think we should put it on our Philip Pullman question list. Yeah, were you inspired by toilets? I mean, ducks are one thing, but toilets? Yeah, that's true. Ducks are pretty cool. Um, Speaking of flowing waters, though, the rivers flowed all the way from the mountains of Central Asia for thousands of years since the authority of God created the earth. But when the earth shook, it changed, and the water, as you said, reversed flow. And Ochiet Semyon calls this the Great Convulsion, asking, Oh, Will, where were you when this happened? And he claims, uh, uh, you know, the fog cleared and I just lost my family and I didn't know where I was. And then Will asks, where are we, by the way? Knowing the name, but not necessarily the location. And the priest directs him to a book from the shelf. Uh, taking this time to continue being very inappropriately close to him and touching him. Ugh. He points at central Siberia and Will looks closely at the Himalayas, seeing nothing like the map Baruch sketched for them. The Is Baruch, like, good at drawing? Anyways, the priest continues to press Will for details about his life before asking the housekeeper to bring food. Beet, root, soup, and dark bread. He then offers to play cards or continue talking with Will, but Will says, uh, he, yeah, I'm, I'm anxious to keep moving and, you know, maybe just get to the passage at the river to go south. <sighs> yeah, that man will not, will not leave him alone and I don't Mm-mm. like it. Mm-mm. I do think it's interesting that Pullman called it the Great Convulsion here, the breaking of the sky and what's been happening, especially because, like, so obviously we know Asriel stabbed the ozone. Right, he straight up just bludgeoned that motherfucker. But Pullman's also like inferring in this series, very metaphorically speaking, that it's not just Asriel that has punched the ozone in its hole. The ozone has been taking all of this trauma and stress, and the people of the world have also been taking all of this trauma and stress due to economic oppression, due to religious oppression, due to blah blah blah, oppression, oppression, oppression. Like, obviously, that's a big metaphor happening here. And I do think that the the language of having it being called the Great Convulsion is interesting, and I wonder if it's referencing the book by John Fulton Lewis, China's Great Convulsion, uh, specifically the decades of China from like 1894 to 1924, uh, basically exploring a lot of things from World War One uh, and how throughout history for China, there were many great convulsions would occur or revolutions and huge political upheavals. And in this book, basically, Fulton goes over how workers helped expedite the victory in World War I in China, being stationed under the guidance of, you know, the British and the U.S. and the French, and how they kind of kept France's factories and farms running and improved kind of port facility things and military airfields and basically rebuilt and restored a war-torn world uh, 
And I think there's something going on here of that as you enter this village and see all the buildings to the side and mangy dogs and a world that's war-torn. You know, we come upon the next place and it's obviously been flooded previously and uh, isn't isn't doing so hot. And every place we're coming to in this world, not just where the bears are from in Svalbard, where it's unbearable to live hey! as we're about to hear. Thanks. <laughs> Hi. And... Uh, it's not just unbearable for them it's obviously unbearable for people and in the Mulefa chapter we see how after devastation and destruction the Mulefa come together instead of here we see people pulling apart and we're about to learn why the priest says people should be pulling apart from you know banding together with others Uh, of being afraid of people being different than you is the big one right like that's something that we're about to hear in full Absolutely, yeah, there's a power struggle in the wake of it, and I think that's a great point, that they're feeling those repercussions all across the world, and obviously across many worlds, because <laughs> that's what the story's about. The priest warns Will of armored bears on the journey, saying to be careful, and is surprised, and he's like, okay, how can I make this lie uh, work, you know, and how I didn't run into any armored bears? He's like, oh yeah, we're... We were a long way from Svalbard, and the priest is like, okay, okay, but, you know, be careful still, because the bears are moving south, they're on a boat, and the towns fear them, and won't let the bears stop to refuel, because they are xenophobic against bears, and yep. then, and so is the priest, he calls the bears the children of the devil, and says, all things north are devilish, like witches, daughters of evil, I'm like, Jesus. Okay, sir. Please come down. And like ignoring all the red flags up until now, it's like, oh, this makes sense. I mean, this part actually like is the least weird thing I think he's done. <laughs> like in terms of what you would expect, I guess them to do. Well, get out of there. I worry about that oh, boy. Absolutely. And. <sighs> So the priest uh, continues and projects a little, saying that they will try to seduce Will to their ways, and that they should all be put to death. And then he offers Will some vodka, because, you know, that's a normal thing to do. Yeah, let's offer the kid vodka. And says every growing man should have a little vodka. Okay, first of all, him, they will try to seduce you. Him tries to seduce you. What? Yeah, but not even seduce, he's like take the alcohol child and and i'm like don't do it don't do it will like he's trying yeah it's like it, 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 literally he's like these people are bad yeah it's it's a lot i just thought that was the worst of it was just like that he literally straight up says those people are gonna try to seduce you he says shoving vodka into your hand what yeah. not even like telling you also the effects of it yada yada yeah I he's mean, like I remember- you have to take it yeah what no, you don't. Yeah, it, it's very uncomfortable. And and as if that wasn't the most uncomfortable thing. So Lydia Alexandrovna, it, it, the woman, the caretaker, the housekeeper that he has, he then starts to talk about her with the vodka. And he says, Lydia Alexandrovna collected the berries last year, and I distilled the liquor. And here in the bottle is the result, the only place where Atyat Semyon Borasovich and Lydia Alexandrovna lie together. He laughed and uncorked the bottle, filling each glass to the rim. This kind of talk made Will hideously uneasy. So, it's a euphemism for sex. 
right? He's saying the only place me and Lydia lay, because we can't, you know, bang, because I'm a priest. Uh, but if we could, it would only be in this vodka bottle right here. We made this together. This sweet, sweet vodka sex, Will. Uh, yes, it's a sex euphemism, right? So, like, now not only is he lording his power of saying you must have the vodka, but now he's, like, making these great sex jokes about Lydia to Will. Coming of age, indeed. Ugh. God, when was, when was the first time you remember having alcohol, Eliana? What kind well, was it? Like, what do, you, what do you mean? Like, first time I ever tasted it, right? Or, like, first time I ever, like, drank it? Your your you firmest I mean? memory, you know, your firmest first memory. I mean, I guess I, I don't count the times when my parents were like, because, you know, you, you ask your parents as a kid, you're like, what's that? And they're like, do you want to taste it? Because they want yeah. you to know you don't like it. Because <laughs> obviously as a child, you're like, this tastes terrible. So obviously one of those at like a wedding. But um, when was the first time I actually drank? I think it was homecoming my senior year. I want to say senior year of high school. Ooh, yeah. I think that's I think that's okay. what it was. I think. So. What was it? What was it? Do you remember? Oh, no. <laughs> no, it was just a no. mix of di- many different things because I was like I don't know what I'm doing and you know back then your metabolism's like amazing at 17, right? I get um, that. Yeah, how about you? I get that. Vodka was my very first booze or the one I remember the most and I don't know which came first, chicken or the egg, but it was either green apple Smirnoff was Ugh. one of them, and vanilla, Stoli's uh, vanilla, to, to kick acceptable. it to the, the old Russian there. Stoli's vanilla, and I can never have vanilla vodka ever again, I will tell you that. Oh, it's I very disappointing. Feeling. It's very I disappointing. I can't drink screwdrivers, because the first time I got so drunk that I vomited, it was, uh, it was uh, vodka and orange juice. So, oh, vodka. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, the totally creepy fatherly priest. Even like, I mean, ignoring the too close movements, he was, you know, seemed to be trying to give Will all this guidance of the way to live his life and what's right about being a man or not, right? Uh, And then, of course, here he is. He opens his mouth and he's like, why, yes, welcome to being an adult, Will. I'm a bigot. Have some vodka, right? Like, he seemed perfectly normal, at least by speech, not by physical action. But then he finally opens his mouth for, like, two more paragraphs. And he's like, ah, fuck these guys. Fuck these guys. And uh, interesting that he's, like, pushing a drink into Will's hands because it's very... uh, satan tempting adam in a way Hmm. right like here's your vodka drink up drink this it'll make you taller he's in such a shit position will is he has to kind of accept this shot in order to leave but also it's such a horrible like position to be in ethically because it's like do i accept this shot from this big asshole and does that make me like accepting that guy's alliance and mean that i think that way too like that's not the man i want to be you know, it, there's a lot for him to take that vodka and have to drink it. Yeah. And like, against it. It's like being, like, forced to, like, act like you agree, even though you don't. It also feels like, now that you phrase it as sort of, like, it's a task or a test, he has to, he has to drink it in order to get past the stage. It feels almost Alice in Wonderlandy mm-hmm. to me. Drink this. Yeah, that's yeah, what I was me. thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Only, you know, it's like, 
Very strange. And at first I couldn't tell if I was like imagining it when he they said like, oh, the priest kept stroking Will's arm. And I was like, so is is Pullman, you know, hearkening to the sort of like specter, if you will, um, of the Catholic priest who molests children. And at first I was like, maybe he's just comforting Will. And then and then he moves his hand later on to Will's knee. And I was like, absolutely not. Absolutely not. No, this is not okay. None of this is okay. And the fact that he just keeps finding ways to touch Will and then like the language at the end, right? Like where he like kisses both of Will's cheeks like again and again and is just very close to him. So they're really, yeah, I guess is that insinuation of him like trying to, or, or he does molest Will, right? In the way that the language is set up and again, like forcing him to drink and trying to get him to be vulnerable. And I mean, on one hand, you're like, is this the thing? But, like, I mean, in recent years, right, they've uncovered way, way, way more. Like, people knew it was happening, but way more of the crimes of a Catholic priest. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, yes, you know, like, I, I think that is one one thing that uh, is worth bringing up. It's, like, that abuse of power over other people, right? Because there's, it's not like it's out of love or sexual like lust or anything it's a it's a power thing that they're getting off on and Mm -hmm. so will in this moment is facing these sort of dual dangers right not only is he trying to pass as someone in this world but there's also that danger threatening his innocence um and whether his innocence is something that he gets to choose to move forward from, or if the threat of his innocence being something that someone tries to or chooses to steal from him, mm-hmm. and he gets out of there thankfully. But yeah, it's definitely very uncomfortable, and yeah. it does feel significantly highlighted. Like now, reading this so much closer, the power structure is definitely there. That power imbalance is very, very prominent. Yeah. And because of that, Will isn't sure how to refuse this vodka without offending him. And I mean, unfortunately, like that is a mood, right? Like Yeah, been there. Yeah. All been there. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, I've I've been very <sighs> lucky. I've been extremely fortunate in like the situations that um I've I've been in where, you know, I've been in those situations and the situations where yeah, I've been put in that position and thankfully i guess for will it was only one and he stands nonetheless blaming his family for him needing to leave and thanking this man for his hospitality the man like tells him again gotta drink your vodka before you go and shows him how to take a shot will does it he feels sick because understandably so i mean i feel like i wouldn't want my first shot to be vodka anyways he swallows it all at the same time before then, again, the priest takes him by the shoulders, intoning a prayer toward him and smelling of sweat, tobacco, and alcohol, and then hugging Ugh. him tightly and kissing his cheeks and telling him to go south. And Will is just walks around nauseated for two hours until the nausea is like replaced by a headache. You know, Balthamos helps out at one point, right? Like, laying his cool hands on his neck and forehead. But Will was like... He feels cursed. He's like, I'm never drinking vodka ever again. And because he was forced into it, yeah. right? Like, you contrast that with Lyra Lyra and Roger's first time drinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great contrast because that was so young and carefree. And they, they got to make it. the choice to do so. Yes. Yeah. And Will did not get that first experience. No, it was, in, it was in the time of duress and being forced on him. And, you know, it, 
he doesn't get the experience where Roger's like, wait, do adults really like this? And Blair's like, yeah, so do I. You know, if I had went to university with Will, I'm just saying he wouldn't be a drinker at this point, right? Obviously, he's probably not going to be a yeah. drinker later in life. But I would roll him the meanest fucking blunt. <laughs> I would smoke down with William Perry. <sighs> we would get high on a Saturday in the library, you know, in the or outside the library. I guess you can't really smoke in a library. People are going to know. It's a fantasy. We would do that <laughs> shit. We would get real high, read a book. I'd be like, Will, you go on with your bad self. Yeah, Will is definitely not going to be a drinker, man. Yeah. <sighs> Will's not going to be a drinker. For Lyra, sure. Lyra is. Um, and I guess that kind of speaks to you were talking about like the offering, right? And the temptation. And again, mm-hmm. Lyra does get that choice. And she chooses to imbibe. She, she the yeah. e-figure, chooses to taste. Will can be her DD. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Someone yeah. needs to watch after that girl. I bet she's going to get crazy drunk in her university. Anyways... Eventually, they reach a town. They've been walking for a long time. Will's hangover is ebbing away, but Will can sense there's trouble. There's smoke coming from the rooftops, and he hears a gunshot. Balthamos becomes his demon once more and becomes a lookout, and they go into the outskirts of town where the buildings are leaning even more perilously. And he sees mudstains from a previous flood that reach far above his head. The outskirts of town are deserted, but he moves towards the river and hears the rifles crack louder and louder, as well as people that are shouting and screaming. He finally spots them watching from upper floor windows as an explosion shakes nearby glass falling out, nearby walls shaking. Through the cries and smoke, he sees a rusting vessel offshore and a mob of people surrounding a great booming turret, as well as another boat with great figures in metal armor aboard. It's the Pantsierborn. Yes! The Panzerbjorn. <laughs> uh, it's so exciting. I know you're so excited to have them back. And honestly, I really love the way this unfolds. I think it's a fun way that it unfolds. I love them. Will finds a man nearby and asks, what's happening? He says that the bears are attacking, but that the people only have one gun to defend the- themselves with. And, you know, the bears, they, they just have a great flamethrower, NBD. <laughs> and... <laughs> Bears with, I mean, bears with flamethrowers, that's like pretty fucking metal in and of itself. Anyway, the bears are attacking the town for resources, as Will had previously heard, because the bears are out of fuel and they are working their way along the river. And then the man calls them, saying they're, they're like robbers and pirates, and Will watches a bear come down the gangway with the others following. A few human sailors try to leave and go to the bear's side, and a man on the human side shoots one, killing no. them. No! And their demon goes, pop! It's like a little seagull. R.I.P. And finally, in all the madness, Will shouts for them to stop fighting. And a bear roars at him, asking him what he is and what he wants. And he says, I'm going to fight you in single combat. I challenge you. And uh, if you will stop fighting the people. The people, in question, jeer and mock and hoot. They're like super jazz. They're like, what is, what's going on? This kid is threatening a Panzerbjorn, trying to fight him, but Will turns cold-eyed and says, alright, people, if I can make the bear give way, you have to sell them fuel, right, and let them go on the river, because otherwise he'll destroy them. Amazing. I love that he summoned Lyra courage and wit in the face of the bears. He's wilding out. He's like, what would Lyra do? 
right? That's the first thought. What the fuck would Lyra do? And it does very much so parallel her dealing with the bears in the past, yes. right? Uh, her clever witticisms. But also, uh, just to harken back to what I mentioned at the top of this chapter, this uh, feels very Lee Scoresby in that also Will mm-hmm. is dealing with the bears and crafting a relationship with them, as well as having to kind of mend and sew a relationship between the bears and some townsfolk that aren't happy with the bears. Again, very Once Upon a Time in the North via Lee Scoresby. Lots of Lee Scoresby in the the beginning there in the first book when we meet him. Uh, I just love that, that Will takes over that plot. It feels great. Yeah, and and it's also, like you said, very much like Lyra, but in Lyra's chapter, right, she has to remind Yorick of the promise that he made once they uh, fulfilled everything. Here, Will has to remind the people. He's like, all right, well, you agreed mm-hmm. to do this, right? And we'll get there in a second, because a voice yeah. shouts, asking for the bear to agree. There says, it would be shameful to fight Will, you small, squishy human. <laughs> I love what he says. He goes, you're as weak as an oyster out of its shell. I can take your head off with a single sweep. It's so true, though. It's so true. <gasps> Oh, Will thinks so too, right? Because he's like, true, LMAO. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, well, how am I going to get out of this? He's this got a is plan. great, though. I can't wait to hear uh, Will's actor in the show do this because I can picture this scene in my head yeah. with Amir Wilson. And it's going to be so good because he's like, it's not fair. You have armor. You're right. I don't have any armor. You should give me a piece of your armor and then we'll be way better matched and it won't be shameful at all. And the bear's like, okay, whatever. Here's my helmet, kid. No one speaks. No one moves. They're like, you fuckers are crazy. Uh, and he <laughs> hoists like, the helmet up. Yeah, right? What is happening? This is one brave fucking kid. He hoists the helmet up. He can barely lift it, and he makes a huge show. He's like, this doesn't look that strong, honestly. And he takes out his knife, and he cuts off a corner of the armor. Right. Okay. He cuts Um, the whole goddamn thing into confetti. Yeah, he, like, just starts shaving pieces off. And this is... Okay, am I... I, I'm not alone here, right? Like, I think you agree with me. This is fucked up. Like, that's his soul. Did we not... Do you... Isn't that his... Their armor is their soul, and maybe Will doesn't get that because he doesn't have a soul, apparently. He just has Balthamos, motherfucker. But you're cutting up his soul. What? Doesn't yeah. that hurt? I was what? I rereading it, I was like, what the fuck is going on here? I was like, I mean, I guess Will hasn't been told, right? You know, how how the culture works. But I'm also just confused, like, why is Yorick not, like, more mad Mm. that this is happening? He's like, this doesn't seem like a big deal. And then later on, he's like, yeah, sure, I guess I can make a new one. And I'm like, wait, wait, I'm I'm sorry. Yorick, did you forget? Like, we spent, like, a pretty big portion of book one. Like, there's a whole arc about you getting your armor back because it was your soul. And now you're just going to let this, like, little punk, like, destroy it? Like, he went into depression over this. It defies all semantics of the books, like, in general, that we've been told. And especially because the subtle knife itself is, like, made up of the same alloys as the blades that sever the demons, right? So, like, connecting all these dots, Pepe Silvio style, I'm like, can we just talk about the male Philip? I don't know. But here's, here's how I'm filling in the blank, okay? Here's how I'm filling in Phil's blank. 
What I'm thinking in my head is that maybe Yorick is grinning and bearing it, haha, right now, uh, because if the townspeople knew that his armor was that big of a part of him, of his soul, then they would be able to exploit him through his armor, just like what had happened at Einarsons and how he was kind of indebted to those people there. Yeah. So maybe this, that's it. Maybe we just don't see Yorick's POV, and maybe he's in immense, horrible, excruciating, traumatic pain because of Will. But I guess, like, you know, I think Pullman would give us Yorick's POV a little, right? Like, because he's, he's not, like, a closed narrator in that sense, so... I don't know. I don't know what's happening. Maybe Yorick's just like, you know, it's true. I've grown a lot. I've gone through a lot of character growth since that time that uh, we were all in book one. And maybe he's like, I need a new soul, right? Like to, to change new me. And I, I don't know. I was just like, I was just, I was very maybe, worried for Yorick Maybe here. Philip Pullman forgot about the Iron Fleet. I mean, I think he did. That is actually what happened. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Well, Will puts some insult to the injury, right? Not only does he shave off Yorick's soul, but then he holds out pieces of metal shavings of Yorick's soul to him, and he's like, "Well, I guess you'll have to fight without your crappy ass armor, bear." Crappy ass like, sides. Yeah, he's like, "Besides, I could take your head off with a sweep of my knife, winky face," and it's really clever, really smart. And Yorick, I mean, the bear. We don't know it's York yet, sorry. The bear caves, saying, <laughs> you win, Will. And Will's like, good, now the bargain has to be kept. And he commands the people to look after their wounded, repair the buildings, and then he's like, just gonna slide in, just burying the lead. He, just to bury the lead, Will's like, and also don't forget to refuel the bears, bye. Yeah. And I actually really like the scene where they talk about how Will, before everything can like erupt into chaos, when everyone's like, we did it, the little boy fucking did it. He like takes control of the situation, is like, all right, everyone, do this. And then, you know, Yorick's very, I I'm sorry, Yorick, not Yorick, not Yorick, but is Yorick the bear, is very impressed with him. We're going to get to it in like a minute. And, you know, the whole conflict between the bears and this town, it's interesting to me because... You know what? When when a big climate disaster happens, climate change, right? In real life, yeah. this is actually what's going to happen with no magical knives it's or what wills. what is happening. And, yeah, is happening and not magical bears, you know. For, the forced migration and conflict over limited resources and who will share them. And and also, you know, ethnic conflict as well as the other kinds. So, in great, awesome. <sighs> yeah it's fine it's going well it is definitely a common theme right and uh it's going great yeah and again definitely feeling the parallels to wheels to the third chapter yes. we're going to talk about today as yes. we get towards the end of this definitely feeling that but the bear is watching understanding and he realizes oh that kid's clever and Will pockets his knife, he exchanges a glance with the bear, and they approach each other, Will using his magic not-so-magic to be quiet and dull-eyed and slow, less interesting, which, a uh, big shout to Lyra in the first book, right, when she was at Bullvanger. This wards <laughs> off all the people, but does not ward off the bear. The bear's like, I would like to see your knife, and Will's like, the only bear that can do that is the only bear I trust, Lyra Silvertongue's friend, Yorick Bernison. And that boy is in luck, because guess what? This is Yorick Bernison. Pew, pew, pew. It's him. It's him. It's it's such a funny exchange, because he's like, I'm Yorick Bernison, and Will's like, I know. 
I, was I like, fucking okay. know, dude. Everyone's real smooth. All right, I see. <laughs> <laughs> and again, uh, so we'll we'll ask like, all right, so are you going to be able to make a new helmet? Because you know, I kind of just like fucked up your other one. And Yorick's like, yeah, NBD. And again, I'm just like, then why did we have an entire plot arc? Where we deal with the shitty people who stole your armor last time, Yorick, and you fell into a deep depression over it. Unsure. Well, they get the boat fueled up, unnoticed by the townspeople, who also don't notice this strange uh, dropped plot. And Will boards the ship with them, and off they go. And coming back to that line at the beginning of the chapter, from Exodus... And Moses. An exodus, as you all know, is a great big departure. Big movement of many people, right? And the bears, they are also going through an exodus. They are fleeing their homeland because their home is melting into the ocean. And if you look at any pictures of starving polar bears, it's real sad. And yeah. And so also the food that nourishes them, the prey that they would eat, uh, they're all dying or leaving. So again... The bears are all leaving. Yorick is also a Mo- Moses figure who is leading the Panzerbjorn to a new promised land. <sighs> yeah, that's actually a great way to close out that chapter, Vodka, uh, of Yorick also being that Moses figure. Really well yeah. done. That brings us into the next chapter, Upriver. We open Upriver with a poem from, again, one of my favorites, Emily Dickinson. The quote that Pullman puts into it is, A shade upon the mind there passes, as when on noon a cloud the mighty sun encloses. Remembering. So, this poem, I love this poem, and I actually love, there's another reference I definitely want to talk about later on that we'll get into into the story about, uh, this actually goes with like the next quote from Wheels very well. The next quote from Wheels is from One Kings that we'll talk about with Elijah and Ahab. And uh, it, it just like flows so well into it. I love the way these three chapters flow. But the rest of this Emily Dickinson poem, it actually goes, That some there be too numb to notice, O oh God, why give if thou must take away the loved? Uh, Obviously hurtful. Hurtful. Uh, very much so. Gives you some some thoughts of what's going on for Balthamos and Baruch and maybe things that might happen later on in the story. We just don't know. Just don't know. I've never read it. <laughs> God damn it. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it, it is hurtful, though, like when I think of it, Baruch and Balthamos. Anyway. So, yeah, upriver. Nothing made of iron or steel is a mystery to Yorick, but Will Perry's knife is, and so is also the the plot point about Yorick's armor. And he shows Yorick the healed wounds on his hand, the wounds that came from the knife, and Yorick notes that, alright, alright, I can kind of smell what healed your hand, Will. It's blood moss and and something else and i'm like it's love it's closure it's the love of his father that healed it and by that i mean his actual father john perry healing him whereas you know in contrast to the other guy the priest right we see priests throughout this whole story they all call themselves a father but they are predatory yeah love did heal that hand you know the witch's spells wouldn't do it yeah uh, but joppery's love did and 
Will says that he learned from the man who healed him uh, that he has to use this knife in the war for Asriel, but first he has to find their friend, Lyra, and Yorick vows once more to help. He explains that the bears are moving to Central Asia over the next handful of days, and he tells him what Asriel did to their climate. They would transform into mountain bears for as long as it took the world to settle. Will is surprised. He'd been told they were making war, but their old enemies had actually disappeared. Now they only have the Great War ahead of them. Hmm. Yorick says he'd fight for whichever side gives advantage to the bears, but he has some regard for very few humans. He tells Will of them. One who flew in a great air balloon and was now dead. <laughs> you have no clue, Will, but your dad loved that dude, too. I They're know. best buds. They, they became real bros, you know? I mean, he lost his life for your dad and for you. Yeah. Dude, he lost. Oh, shit. Anyways, no wonder he's carrying the mantle. The other, of course, is Serafina Pecola, the witch. And the third, of course, is Lyra Silverton. He says his priorities are first the bears and second his friends, but yes, he will help young Will find Lyra. Yeah, I just thought this was interesting, right? The, you know, obviously, obviously Yorick loves Lyra, you know, this whole like chosen family thing going on, but that Yorick, you know, I, I guess usually the trope that you would expect is he'd be like, yeah, my priority is helping that little girl, but his priority as a king is putting his people, the Panzerbjorn, first, even above Lyra, and ensuring the bear's safety before her. So I, I, I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, he has to now. I yeah. Mean, they're unsafe. And he has, like, let's be real, he's cashed in a bunch of favors for Lyra so far. Uh, yeah, that's and true. He's cashing in another one right now for her. He's like, yeah, sure, I'd die for that girl. Because yeah. many people have. Yeah, it's it's normal, you know, that's what people do. They die for Lyra. <laughs> uh, by daytime, Will gathers his strength. He's been dozing on the deck on and off. Yes, we are in the Will napping territory wow. of the book. <laughs> Watching Parallels. the scenery change and chatting with the crew. He lacks the instant ease that Lyra usually has with people, right? With the human sailors and strangers on the boat. But they also don't seem interested in him. They don't really like the bears either, but they do like their gold. It seems they view that as just a job. The sailors also kind of seem suspicious of Will's demon. This is interesting to me. It was much like a witch's to them, vanishing and reappearing, superstitious. Balthamos keeps quiet, but sometimes his grief will become too strong, so he would have to fly out to taste the air and the shooting stars and remind himself once more of Baruch and his love. Ugh, that just breaks my heart. I know. It does remind me a little bit of uh, the last time we were kind of on a boat like this, which was in the first book with the Egyptians, where Lyra learns about demons and people that have demons of the water, for example, or bird demons hmm. and how, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, they could only go so far without fear of severing from them from their demon. They'd have to be there. And like the the man with the dolphin demon is what I was thinking of specifically, but hmm. kind of feels like the anti that right now of Balthamos, you know having to fly to the sky just to conceal his grief and be able to come back and do his job as demon. So sad. We have this line of, Perhaps he thought Will had little sympathy, though if he'd sought it, he would have found plenty. He became more and more curt and formal, though never sarcastic. He kept that promise, at least. Hmm... Yeah. Sad. Sad. Poor Balthamos. Like, this has to be so hard because 
He just spent all this really intimate time with just Will after Baruch died, being Will's demon, and now suddenly Will has a new friend that's connected to his girlfriend, to Lyra, and now he has to kind of split that time. And I'm not saying that Will owes Balthamos that time, but I just know that, like, this has to be really hard for Balthamos as he just was getting used to Will and spending all this time with Will, and now the war is coming and there's no time to rest. Yeah, and I, I almost wonder, like, is being around Will kind of too painful for, for Balthamos, right? Does he feel like Baruch died because of him? And also just, I mean, maybe he, first, as a being that is thousands and thousands of years old maybe he just like doesn't really know how to be like hey human who's like as old as basically a second to me and you know really being able to confide in will like that and he he's also kind of just feels isolated right now in his grief and i think will as as is pointed out he doesn't have the same ease as lyra he's not as great as at reaching out and comforting them so there's that and it's just also sad, you know, I know that he promised Will, like, to be less sarcastic, but to see it kind of disappear from him, you're seeing, like, that humor disappear from Balthamos, right, that characterized him so much at the beginning of this book, and you get, and you see that joy disappear from him. Yeah, and it's kind of like a morbid topic to relate it to, but my my dad's parents, they're they're both not with us anymore, and, like, I always remember hearing things when they were sick and when they were kind of, you know, reaching the end of their lives that people would say, you know, when one goes, the other doesn't go very far after. Like, it's hard when there are two people who are a part of each other, right, who have joined their souls and their hearts together and been so very a part of each other for so long. It's hard when one goes and yeah. that it's not very long until the other one is ready to join them as well. And even weirder is that like when I adopted my cats from their foster mother, she said that about one of them that like one of the cats would be fine on their own, but if the if the other one was on their own, they would be lost without hmm. that cat. That they were like, Oh no, they need each other, like they are each other, you know, and uh it it's gotta be just so hard when like that other side of you is gone, you know, like what yeah what do you do anymore? All of your routine yeah. is gone, everything your world rotated around their stars but around their stardust so Balthamos yeah. can't get any sense of normalcy in all of this how could he I mean they're in war yeah they've built a life together and I mean yeah. Baruch defied like what the laws or something right to become an angel to yes. be with him like so mm -hmm. and I mean even though Balthamos was probably like way older like 4,000 years is still a significant amount of time to spend with someone yeah, absolutely. And, like, you don't want to spend a single moment without them once you've found them. You know, like, once you've found the way that your puzzle piece clicks. Not, not like, a single moment, but I you mean, know what I yeah, mean. Like, I, I've, been through, I've been through a pandemic. To. Yeah, I've been through a pandemic 24-7 yeah. around my partner. I could spend every now and then a second without them. <laughs> yeah, but, like, they don't need to. And yeah. now they are. Yeah. <sighs> well, to come back to, to Yorick, he's examining the knife obsessively. He's testing it. He's sniffing it. He's listening to it. He even like puts it to his tongue at one point. And he's like, what does it taste like? And 
you know, maybe maybe Will would be nervous about anyone else like just prodding the knife this much, but he doesn't fear it for Yorick, who's obviously a highly accomplished craftsman, very delicate touch, and I, I love obsessive Yorick, it sounds so cute. Um I know he's a murder bear, but Yorick then comes to Will and asks about So I I can see what this edge of the knife does, but the other edge looks very different. Clearly this is not for smashing people or or armor to smithereens and what is it and was like i will show you later but it's kind of hard to demonstrate on a moving boat lots of risks here um, but when we stop i'll show it to you and so by this time in the trip the river is changing color meeting the first flood waters that have swept down out of the arctic and village after village they see houses that are up to their roofs in water and people who are trying to salvage what they can with boats and canoes <sighs> Lots of La Belle Sauvage feels here. No spoilers. Yeah. We'll talk a little bit about it probably in the discussion, but very La Belle Sauvage. Uh, a flood and devastation and people rebuilding again. Absolutely. The river slows. The earth is sunken just a bit here, and the air is hotter as well. The bears find it really hard to keep cool, some swimming alongside the steamboat in the water. And eventually it narrows and deepens, and the great Central Asian mountains appear in the distance. The bears look up in wonder, never having seen mountains, most of them before, and they ask Yorick, what are we going to eat here without seals? He responds, there's snow, ice, and other animals aplenty. Life will be different, and they'll have to get used to a different taste, but once the Arctic freezes again, they can go back to claim their home. Spoiler, the new animals are going to eat are humans in the mountains. Oh my god. I made that up. That's not true. That that I that's not that's not canon at all. Unless, you know. You're just invested <laughs> in humans being eaten in every story you read. I mean it's possible I mean it obviously happened in this one. I I do, obviously I don't think it's humans because first of all, yeah, they're like, what about seals? If I were a bear, if I were anything, I guess. Like, the seals sound like way tastier, you know, they're like big giant hazelnut cream puffs apparently and also probably not exactly like that obviously meat uh meat hazelnut cream puffs and also i I just think humans are not very tasty apparently well i mean we don't know that we don't but i just feel like yorick's got other he's going out there for the other menu because i guess he's like i guess we could have eaten humans if we wanted but oh my god sucks you know, Yorick goes on to warn them just to be wary of all the strangeness to come, and the steamer comes to a shallow area and a halt in the riverbed. They draw themselves to the edge of the valley, and off they go. Will asks the captain where they're going next, but he speaks very limited English and says, they'll be in the valley now, and hands him an old map. The captain turns to supervise their unloading, and before long, the bears and their armor are standing against the narrow shore. I love this valley that they are in because mm. it's like the literal valley of rainbows, the actual mm. valley of rainbows, which is at Mount Everest. It's a segment on the cliff, which is, um, it's going to get dark. Get ready. This is where climbers and other dead bodies seem to appear that can't, you know, either finish their trip or make the whole trip up Mount Everest. So there's just a whole cliff called the Rainbow Valley, the Valley of the Rainbow, and it's just dead bodies. Why which, the fuck would they call it that? <laughs> I, that's what I'm wondering, right? But it, it's given like interesting context when you think about it in the story that this is where Lyra is, right? She's in the mm. Himalayas. She is in the Valley of the Rainbow, 
speaking to Roger from the hmm. afterlife in her subconscious, right? Like speaking to someone who he himself did not make it up the mountain. Interesting. He did Interesting. not come back down. He died on the mountain. Huh. And also, yeah, that they're going up there to go, I guess, get this, in a way, holy figure, Lyra. And I mean, Moses yeah. goes up a mountain, right? Yes. Mount Sinai. And he comes back down. And he's like, what the fuck happened while I was gone? <laughs> this is terrible. <laughs> you were all doing terrible shit. <laughs> it's not untrue. <laughs> But interesting, sad, sad. Maybe it's like full of actual rainbows, and now that's also like fucked up. There's a bunch maybe of dead the bodies rainbows under the rainbows. Are, well, maybe the rainbows are the souls, you know? Oh. Maybe yeah, that's that, what causes the rainbows are people's souls. I don't know how I feel about that. Mixed. I feel mixed feelings. Sad. Okay, you literally just <laughs> talked about like eating people for like five minutes straight. Yeah, but that's not sad. Apparently, I, I think we're apparently disgusting tasting. Hmm. The steamer takes off and Will sits on a rock, as he does, examining the map and finding the valley where Lyra is being held captive. If he's right about her location, the best way there is through a pass called Songshen. Yorick calls his bears to mark the place that they currently are and says that they shall assemble here when they go back to the Arctic and if war threatens, he will call for them. And he's like, go. Enjoy the mountains. York gathers Will, and they begin their trip to find Lyra amidst the sun, the pines, and the rhododendrons. Resting on the boat had built up Will's strength, and obviously he sorely needed it. So now the exercise kind of feels nice. And then Will shows York how the knife works. He's like, look, a tropical rainforest. It's real different from here, laden with vapors and scents. And York's like, wow, amazing. He steps through to the animal calls of the rainforest, and then he's like, mm, that's not for me, though, and then watches as Will closes the window, and then he says, you know what? You were right, Will. I definitely could not have fought that knife. And I'm just really glad that Will has made such a fantastic, great impression, like, first impression on Lyra's real father, Yorick Bernison. He's the only father figure all except for Lyra. It's true. It's true. Especially because, you know, Lee's dead. Yeah, Lee's like her uncle, I think, you know? I mean, he and Yorick could both be fathers. To that's Lyra. true. Anyone can be to make up for everyone. <laughs> that's true. Anyone in the bar is low. Anyone could be Lara's father. You could just hop, so skip, jump over that bar. You could just stab the sky, yep. start a climate problem, and a whole ward seven. The, the master, uh, the master of Jordan College, another father figure. Yeah, uh, I mean, look, if you're a murderer, Lyra's going to be fine with you. Yeah. So they move on, speaking little, stopping to exchange coin for food at one point for Will, as well as getting some boots and a waistcoat to help manage the extreme cold at night. Balthamos continues to pose as his demon, now a crow, helping the communication flow between the men that they buy things from. I just thought that this was interesting, because in the previous chapter, we ran across, like... That creepy priest and his demon was a crow, but here, this person who's perfectly, like, decent also has a crow demon and Balthon was taking on the crow demon. So I, I we get to see that, you know, the, the demons don't always just stand for one thing in a person's nature, but I just thought that was interesting. So close to one another. Yeah, that is really interesting. The contrast of those are glaring. Yeah. One person's, like, normal. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like Balthamos was trying to, you know clear the crow's name 
after that. Yeah. Like, ha, huh, like, I can be a better crow. Yeah, like a crow can be crafty, right? Here, I guess he's selling and buying things. You know, crows, I, I believe, right? They like shiny things. And the mm-hmm. other priest, though, he's more of like a sort of scavenger in a way. Yeah, absolutely like a scavenger. A feast for crows. Don't I don't know it. Don't know anything about it. They get directions to continue on for three more days, getting closer and closer to their destination. But so are the other parties, right? Like Azrael's force, squadrons of gyropters and zeppelins are reaching the opening between worlds above Svalbard, flying without pause at King Agunway's command. A Galavespian lodestone operator is aboard this gyropter, and they get news from Lady Selmalkia. So I'm still annoyed, like, even now in this chapter, I'm still annoyed that they, like, emphasize him again as African King, a gunway. And we had previously, I don't want to, I want to say maybe it was in La Belle Sauvage, or maybe it was in these books, discuss the world building, maybe it was in the, with the historic materials, what the world of Lyra is like, because obviously some of the countries and the territories, different things happened in their history and things went differently, right? Like, for example, the country of Texas. And we had questioned whether or not Africa had been colonized as it was in our world. Because it's entirely possible that it wasn't, right? Or maybe it was differently so. But it's it's possible that it wasn't. There's an empire of Niger, which implies that if it's that empire just there, that it was not colonized by Europe. And the name Niger coming from, in real life, coming from the Niger River, uh, which maybe from the Tuareg dialect, which is related to the Berber dialect and people coming from the term. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry if I, I mispronounced this. I wasn't able to find a, a pronunciation of Egeru Nigerawan or Ger Niger, meaning river of rivers. Mm-hmm. And if I had to like make a guess of like where in Africa the enormous fucking continent Really, really big. <laughs> um, King Agunway might be from, I would guess potentially he is from the Yoruba people, but I'm, I can't say that I'm sure because I think it's weird because we explicitly get someone who's called a Yoruba person, like earlier in this series, like explicitly yeah. called a Yoruba that Lee meets. So I'm like, why would they, why would he just not do that again for King Agunway? All right, and I think it just bothers me so much more because we get all this specificity with like these other cultures, right? We get the Russian Siberian priest, and like a specific town that they're in, right? Or we get information like about the Galavespians, who are also not homogenous, right? And they're like, oh yes, and the Galavespians, they all have different clans that are very specific and these are their cultures in it and the different political factions or even like in the first book i think like the first book does a great job of being more specific in terms of like you know we have the tartars right or muscovy the other ethnic groups and um talking about like the egyptians and where where they live and all those that gets fleshed out so much so i am just like I don't know, flattening the whole ass, like, super ethnically, racially, culturally, religiously, and, like, politically diverse continent of of Africa was pretty lazy here. <laughs> yeah, it's really frustrating. Uh, I won't obviously spoil now what goes on in the rest of the book, but I'm just, like, firmly in agreement because he doesn't get a lot 
going forward and he gets referred to as only the Afric King a gunway right. or the African King. And it's like, what about Africa? How about you tell us more of his culture and of his people and why he's fighting like we talked about last month yeah. or last episode? We talked about what is his motivation to be in this fight, uh, but he kind of gets turned into a glorified guard man slash commander and that's it. Yeah, and and I mean, it matters, you know, where he's from. Like, is he north, mm-hmm. east, west, central, south? I mean, like, that matters to people and, like, his, the culture that he comes from because that doesn't even get fleshed out. And I think that that speaks to a lot of the valid criticisms that people have said of Philip Pullman lately in terms of how he treats people of color, not not just written, but, like, in real life and writers of color. He was rightfully called out earlier this month defending i guess he he was trying to defend i guess katie clanchy's book which does a, a poor job of writing about people of color and very condescendingly so and in writing the other and in addressing the criticisms i'm not going to to name the people who brought up the criticisms i think you can find that and also i don't know if pullman actually didn't say their names i know people said that he needs to apologize to them specifically i wonder if he didn't say their names because uh he didn't want to direct even more, you know, attention, spotlight them, like, get people harassing them, because he unfortunately did add to that. And, you know, in calling out, in what he thought was calling them out, was ignoring criticisms of of people trying to say, hey, this is really dehumanizing. And yeah. he leaned instead on, like, Islamophobic comments and calling you know, writers of color who are, again, asking for their humanity, for people of colors like humanity, to be acknowledged. Um, he leaned on, like, calling them extremist groups. And I was like, seems pretty different. And, yeah. yeah. Especially because when he was initially fa- called out on this, he did kind of sputter and backpedal. Uh, and didn't apologize right away. He did come out and apologize. I will give him that. I wasn't really expecting him to do so on Twitter. And and like it was a, I think he understood in his apology that he was what he needed to say and what he was sorry for because, you know, Twitter apologies are kind of not always full on that. But it still is like a, a very, I wouldn't say recovering, but it's not seldom it's more occasional you know that you see some things like that from him that reinforce some of these things in his books uh and even some of the criticisms that i know you and i will someday have when we get to the secret commonwealth in a slower at slower analysis of it right like it just really seems there's some narrow-minded thinking for him when it comes to i mean especially women of color but here here specifically it is king of gunway yeah i just I'm like, not only would I like more thought and care given to black or brown, right? We don't, yes. we don't know for King of Gunway. Africa I literally isn't cannot just, tell you. Yeah. Um, we're in Africa, okay? Like, and anyways. Um, the one thing that I will say and real to life, that. Real life. Yeah. The one thing I will say, too, otherwise, like, the only thing I will say is that he has worked towards adding a little bit more representation in the Books of Dust. Sure. Um, As far as, like, even expanding on 
Farder Coram's skin color, for example, and giving him chestnut-colored skin. Uh, just things that he never quite expanded on in the initial trilogy. That's not really a spoiler. That's just it's true what he says about a character having a different skin color. And like, I'm glad that he is not against doing that in his story and his furthering of his story. Like seeing, maybe I should expand on this after all, or maybe this description is important. I just don't know if it's enough to really matter. If it's meaningful is more what I mean. I don't know if it's really meaningful necessarily, but at least he's open to looking at it, I guess. At least, at least. It's disappointing. Obviously, he's not there yet at analyzing what, you know, again, like his books are so interested in discussing systems of oppression when it comes to power, but he Mm -hmm. doesn't, he's not at the point yet where he is looking at systems of oppression when it comes to race, and, like, maybe that's why he got so defensive, right? Uh, if he calls Farder Quorum skin color chestnut and clanchy, I think those are some of the criticisms. Like, there's there's discussion lately of, like, let's stop describing non-white people's skin colors within using food, right? Yeah. And, um... Yes. So, so that, that, that exists in that, and um, maybe that's part of it, and... I think he he needs to learn to understand that there's a difference, right? Because again, looking at systems of power, he, the 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 mm-hmm. writers that he's talking about um, that he was crit- criticizing, and like what we're doing here, also, we're not the people with the systemic power. What we're doing is we're yeah. actually doing exactly what I think uh, the books have encouraged us to do, which is question. And rebel and try to try to make a more equitable world by calling these out, calling out the things that have continued to oppress. I hope. But I do think, like, I think there's a part of what you're saying that's, again, it's so systemic and it's very much so ingrained into our very systems. And sure. his first impression is totally like a heel turn and not to accept it, not to think about it, not to admit maybe he needs to understand that more. And, like, you can't dismantle that system of oppression with the way he is confronting it right like and and there's a certain stigmatism for different generations you know some generations uh beyond us that have grazed and walked the earth before us they have had different things economically and socioeconomically to deal with than we have and different mindsets but because that oppression that we're talking about is so deeply ingrained in the system like it's stuff you have to unlearn and it's stuff that he might not necessarily be always open to unlearning with where he is in his life. And I think it being called out recently is good that it gives him a chance to maybe learn more about it and understand more about it. I don't think at this time when these books came out, yeah, I obviously don't think he was anywhere near being open to understanding that. And it does, it does ring to me like, jk rowling style the end of the harry potter Mm. series you know like we dismantled all this systemic oppression and now we're cops (laughs) like that that was and he's not you know uh i hope that he's telling such a bigger story with the books of dust but i don't know that he is telling a bigger story himself i guess we'll find out yeah and i think you know, like you said, he he is showing a willingness to learn uh, in the apology that he put out, and I think he's shown a willingness for growth, and and his writing also shows uh, his growth as a person. And yeah. you know, I don't know that he like fully 
gets it yet, but I think he's trying to. And I think that in general, in general, I've seen him make a trajectory of trying to learn and understand more as far as I can tell. And so I I hold out hope, but I also understand, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm reading this. This is the drawback, right? And I understand not not as an excuse, but this is the drawback of reading books written by white men. So and yes, (laughs) I mean, yes. I'm just gonna call it. I'm just gonna call it out. But I, 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 the books encourage us, right? So he's living up to to that. That the books encourage us to grow, to deepen, and to question, and that he's going through that process himself. And look, he has at least you know a half a book left to write for the last book of Dust Still. So maybe it's in time. Maybe it's just in time, everyone. Maybe it's just in time. <laughs> Speaking of which, eight hours ago, he tweeted, um, someone said, you know, someone tweeted looking for some inspiration today, so thought if I could find my demon. They posted a, a photo that is kind of spoilery, and they said, still impatient for part three of the Book of Dust. And then Pullman responded eight hours ago with, it's coming. So that that's promising to me. Next year. I bet it's going to be next year. Oh, shit. What it- if it's not? What if it's this fall? <gasps> Honestly, I don't think it could be this fall because I feel like it would yeah, be announced already. They'd be doing marketing. But I do think, like, I mean, I'm not saying next year I think is it's impossible. Concurrent. I, I think, think it's going to be released after the show. I think, it, yeah, I definitely think it's possible. Like, I know that he uh, hasn't had ducks lately to inspire him, but maybe he has ducks. now. <laughs> Pictures of ducks for Pullman. Hi, hi Pullman. We just, criti- we just criticized you heavily, but here's some ducks. I hope he knows it's out of love for his story. You know, Philip Pullman, yeah. Phil, if I may call you Phil. Oh my god. If you're listening <laughs> Again. somewhere. <laughs> Again. It's my favorite running gag, truly. Uh, my favorite recent running gag. Hey, Phil, if you're listening, know it's only out of love of your story and that we love your story and want it to be the best story it could be. Anyways, it's I digress. That, like, we hope that our heroes, right? We hope that our heroes, and obviously not to hold them to... to you know, Euro two high standards. Pe- people are human; they're fallible. But mm-hmm. like a hope that people that you admire can continue to to try and and be admirable. <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah. And I I think even just trying, I will happy for an attempt. Hashtag growth. Yeah, yeah. We're changing. We're changing all the time too. So. Well, back in the Amber Spyglass in Upriver, the Galavespian spy, Lady Selmachia, watches from the shadows as the arms of the church, the CCD, and the society all agree to put their differences aside and pool their knowledge. That's terrifying. The society's alethiometrist is a little better than Fra Pavel, so now Suck. the CCD knows exactly where Lyra is, and Azriel's force is coming to save her. They know that too. Wasting no time, they make their way out. Whoever gets there first has the best advantage. Azriel's gyropters are faster than the CCD, but also have longer to fly. Also, whoever has Lyra has to fight their way out of the other person's arms. Except not the CCD, because they don't plan on keeping Lyra. Oh no, they plan on killing her. The president of the CCD, Father McPhail, rides aboard the Zeppelin, but little does he know, others are aboard as well. Yeah, it's Lady Salmachia and Chevalier Tiales, who have received direction to smuggle themselves aboard and leave to save Lyra as soon as they can, protecting her until King Agunway can come collect her. 
And apart from the lodestone resonator, they also had brought something very precious to them. A pair of insect larvae. When the adults emerged from the larvae, they would be more like butterflies than anything, but not like normal butterflies that Will or Lyra knew or that I have seen having sex in the middle of the air, which is still amazing every time. Um, they are much larger, <laughs> real big, they are bred carefully by the Galavespians. Salmachias would be slender and fast and electric blue, glowing in the dark, which does not sound very sneaky to me. Chevalier Tialises would be red and yellow, striped with vigorous appetites. The Galavespians could just keep feeding them oil and honey to keep them suspended or turn them to adulthood. And now they they only have 36 hours to hatch them and they need the insects to be born before the zeppelins land. Oh yeah, things are starting to get a little bit tense here. For sure, it's time. And shout out again to last episode when we talked about this being kind of very fairy nymphs or Thumbelina. But I love mm -hmm. the depiction of the dragonflies here. Pullman's really held back otherwise on the Galavespians so far to give them that bit of intrigue, it feels like. But as they get rolled to the forefront, we start to get hints at their personalities through this dragonfly, right? Uh, Selmachia's mm -hmm. dragonfly, slender, fast, electric blue, glowing, not unlike her own quick wit and vibrant personality, uh, versus her contrasting partner, Chevalier, who is red and yellow striped and has a vigorous appetite. And I, I feel like that's pretty significant because he seems to be more ambitious. And red, of course, is kind of that dominant color of war and flame. He seems a little fiery. And... It feels like there's an emphasis on the pairings of these dragonflies, and not just the dragonflies, but also in these three chapters, pairings, having a demon, having a soulmate, having soul armor, having a, a partner, Zalif, to help you in your chores. We see this here with the Galavespians and their dragonflies, and uh, we see Mary kind of working with the Mulefa to do more fulfilling work by doing it together in that next chapter, which makes the human isolation feel kind of absurdly abnormal. And then, of course, Will and Balthamos uh, are, are forced into kind of having that same intimacy and working together as well. The dragonflies aren't necessarily demons, right, for the Galavespians, but it kind of stands to reason that they're a mm -hmm. part of them, right? That the Galavespians nurse and nurture the larvae in a certain manner to grow them or evolve them through to their next stage of life and metamorphosis. In a lot of other folklore, dragonflies are often looked at as messengers between worlds. Hmm. And in Europe, there's even darker lore, like calling them the devil's darning needle or the goddess's horse, charming snakes, following them, stitching them up. They're even believed to suture close the lips of disobedient children or revive dead serpents in the underworld. Lots of references to them being just tools of the devil, but here they're tools of Asriel's. They're Asriel's dark materials. Interesting. Very, very cool connections between, yeah, how the Galavespians have all been woven together. And I know that last chapter, um, if any of you remember, Chloe talked about the origins of the term, the name Galavespians. And something we didn't uh, talk about that much. I, I just think it's funny, you know, the Galavespians have now joined the British canon of using miniature people to comment on politics. One of the, the ones that comes to mind first is from Gulliver's Travels, of like the place of like Lilliput and Blefuscu, mm -hmm. and the 
like political strife between them. Obviously Gulliver, right? Like he's there, he's huge, and he's like, "What the fuck is going on?" He puts out a fire with his pee, and it, it's a whole hubbub. And obviously, you can see some sort of like similarities, right? Obviously, I, I don't think Pullman draws from it that much, but the idea of someone traveling between many different places. Uh, just like how we are traveling between different worlds. And then another one is, I don't know if that I see too many similarities between this, but uh, the borrowers with uh, small people who mm -hmm. are like residing in a house and kind of the power dynamics, right, when it comes to how each of these stories approaches the politics and that commentary using small people. And here in His Dark Materials, the big people are the ones who are agents of the magisterium, so. Yes, I love that. And I was thinking about that with Gulliver's for sure. Mm -hmm. So it, it's fun. And I like the, uh, I think Thumbelina is a, is a great, and the fairy nymphs, right, is, is a great way that it's woven in when it comes to the dragonflies, because Harley Pullman also has quite a lot of knowledge when it comes to fairy stories. I feel like that's so significant. <laughs> Like, yeah. I didn't catch that on the first read-through, obviously, but now having read La Belle Sauvage and The Secret Commonwealth, I'm like, aha! Mm -hmm. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, they're very much part of this, like, I mean, lots of secret worlds. It's not that yeah. secret, I guess, if you lived in that world. Anyway, so the Galavespians continue to eavesdrop and spy, but there's one thing that they do not learn about because Fa President McPhail doesn't speak of it. He's like, put it out of his mind. He's like, that that's its own thing. The assassin, Father Gomez, who has been pre-absolved of his sins because he was somewhere else and no one was tracking him at all except for us, the readers, in the next chapter. Wheels. Yes, Wheels, our final chapter of the night, which opens with One Kings. There ariseth a little cloud out of the sea, like a man's hand. So this comes from 1 Kings 1843 to 44. And Elijah said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And seven times he said, Go again. Then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, There is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Basically, Elijah prays for rain, and he sends his servant to the sea to look to the sky for seven days straight, looking to see if it will come, and each time he's like, no, Elijah, it's not here yet, and Elijah says, well, go check again, and he keeps praying. On the seventh day, it comes to pass, and the servant sees a cloud coming from the sea in the shape of a man's hand, an answer to their prayers, coming morally that the hand represents an answer not just to the prayers, but that relief comes to those who pray continuously throughout their hardship. It signals a downpour of great blessing, especially an answer to anxiety by a church's member to give salvation to other souls. Of course, in context in his dark materials, we know that when the church thinks they should grant salvation to people, like we just heard, it's not usually good. It is not. It is not. And you see something kind of like coming from waters at the end of this chapter. But before then... Again, who is watching Father Gomez? We, the readers, are watching him. Talk to Angelica and Paolo. You might remember them from book two. They were a big deal also. 
They tell Father Gomez that they saw the woman that he's looking for days ago. They said that she was hot, and they didn't mean the way that we think of Mary Malone as hot. They <laughs> meant that she was like literally very warm and sweaty and older. They're like, yeah, she's maybe like, I don't know, 30 to 50 years old. I'm like, that's a pretty big range, kids. <laughs> kids don't know. They don't oh, know no, things. they don't. They actually don't. Like, when I was their age, I'd been like, I don't know. They really don't, yeah. <laughs> Calling 20-year-olds 60 years old, I'm like, I don't know, they're 60. <laughs> could be 80, could be 5. Yeah, <laughs> anything. But what they do know for sure, she was carrying a big rucksack. She wasn't afraid of the specters, or even aware of them. She just walked through the city. And Father Gomez presses them for more info, and Paolo says, He thinks, you know, maybe you're here to bring the knife back to us, Father Gomez. And Father Gomez is like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. You know what? I'm going to try if I can. They show him the Torre degli Angeli, complaining about the boy who stole the knife and killed their brother. Then they also complain about the girl too, saying she was a liar and as bad as the boy. And you know what? From their perspective, they're not, she's not wrong. They're not wrong. Not at all wrong. No. Uh, and they go on. They're like, you know, we almost killed those kids, but for the witches who came and took them away. And they tell him she went south toward the mountains, and he thinks them blessing them. And off he goes through the hot, silent streets. Yet another creepy father here, Father Gomez. I kind of forgot about this scene. I really actually like the way The Good Show, his dark materials, the adaptation of the books, they really had a nice change in having a scene with the children and Mary established. <sighs> and it painted them as mm -hmm. just like, I don't know, no details, but just a little more complex in that. I personally wasn't happy with the way that plot was delivered originally, but I do like that interaction. And I, I, I don't know, I get the feeling Pullman sees them more as like the worst Lord of the Flies kind of kid scum. Lyra will are evil, they declare. But at the same time, as we kind of discussed and defended during our subtle knife chapters, I'm like, these kids are, you know, nature versus nurture, helpless. And Lyra and Will did kind of disrupt the children's safety and entire ecosystem and way of living, right? Like, not that it, I'm promoting yeah. it, it, it's just like, they took away their only hope, lol. And led, yeah, I mean, it did kind of lead to their brother dying a little. <laughs> Who had the knife that would save them all from getting, you know, soul eaten by the specters. Yeah, now they have to grow up yeah. in fear, in, again, a resource war type thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's yeah. a, it's another it's another exploration of that. So agreed. Totally agreed. Yeah. And I do have to mention, like, on that same note of that microcosm of the story, uh, this chapter for what it is, I love it, right? Like it's beautiful and it's written with great prose. So I say this with all the love in my heart, that it is one of those chapters that is just absolutely so on the nose. Like mm. there's a lot of subtext that's not subtext, it's context. Right? It's blaring. There's, like, blaring loud, like, obvious parallels and metaphors in this chapter. It's a National Geographic episode with a hippy-dippy, why can't we all get along, thrown in, right? With, like, obvious nature parallels that speak for themselves. I have critique on some of the delivery and what it means, but I just have to put out there that, like, Pullman knew what he wanted to accomplish with this chapter, and it all comes through. Bright and clear. Bright and clear. Metaphors. We get it, Pullman. We get it. Yeah, what he was trying to say is some birds are good, like ducks, but other birds, no. <laughs> other birds, like Tuolapi, bad. Bad, we hate birds. <laughs> and, yeah, absolutely. And 
I think I like the prose in the previous, the entrance of the Malefa's world more than this one. But as you said, there's some really, really clear things that Pullman's trying to show. And I mean, I still, I still feel for the Chittagatse kids. And I, I like the direction they did in the show, but I also really like what Pullman does in, as you pointed out, stringing the parallels with Lord of the Flies. I think that comes through and is very strong. Yeah. I don't feel like he loves the children like we we do, you know? I think he's, like, fine with them being on their own with specters. He's like, whatever, you guys were assholes to Lyra. I think I think he also, uh, though, I think there's an aspect of him showing, like, they kind of have a point, right? I mean, um, they might not be good, but does that mean that they don't deserve to live? Yeah. yeah. And I think that's that's a good question. Yeah. I, it's good to put that against the Tuolapi in this chapter, <laughs> don't you think? Those kids are like uh, birds. No. <laughs> oh my God. All right. <laughs> That's not what he meanwhile, says at all. Meanwhile, Mary Malone has spent three days getting to know these wheeled creatures. The first morning, they carry her quickly to the settlement at the river, led by their thundering wheels on the ground and the beat of their feet. It's uncomfortable, but she becomes much more aware of their physiology throughout the trip. Their skeletons have a diamond frame with limbs at each corner. The basalt highway slopes eventually, leaning downward, and the creatures eventually freewheel, tucking up their legs and hurling, hurtling along in a very terrifying way. And she's like, she's not in danger, but man, she wishes there was an oh shit handle on these guys. You know, she's like, man, I just wish I had something to hold on to. Uh, but they get her there, safe and sound. And at the settlement, she sees a gleam beyond of further water. But she then makes to see their homes beyond it. 20 or 30 huts in a circle made up with wooden beams covered with some sort of wattle and daub mixture on the walls and thatched roofs. I didn't know. I, I had a feeling of what wattle and daub was like. I've Googled my way around it, but I did think it was very interesting that it's like a composite building method, almost like, you know, when you paper mache, but like big huh. scaled up, scaled up. Um, used for making walls and buildings in which basically a, a woven lattice of wooden strips called wattle is daubed with a sticky material huh. like wet soil, clay, animal shit, straw. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. It's just like kind of like a paper mache. Yeah, very cool. And, you know, using that method, we see that some of the creatures allegedly are... Repairing a roof, hauling a net out of the river, getting brushwood for fire, and Mary's like, so they have fire, language, and a society, and then Mary realizes that these beings aren't creatures, they're people. They may not be human, but they are people, and it's not them, they're us, she thinks. Really seeing those connections, and I, I love that about Mary, and also I, though I am wondering, okay, so how come... The Panzerbjorn aren't people, and I wonder this, like, constantly. I'm like, I don't understand why the Malefa are not considered, like, why the, why the Malefa are considered people and the Panzerbjorn are not. That's all. Well, I think the first thing is POV, right? Like, we're getting this through Mary's POV. We don't get the Panzerbjorn through people that would necessarily think of that difference. Will and Lyra don't think that there's a difference between them you know like they don't think them or us they think ah those bears are interesting and they do this uh mary does think that way if she's trying to understand things i just don't think like we're seeing them necessarily through that now however i want to say that i do think that's the point 
like of these few chapters and of, for example, the bears as they're fighting for resources for survival. I mean, that's the point, right? Like that Pullman's like, they deserve to live. They're a people that are, you know, they have a society and their society has been fucking devastated because of Asriel right now and they deserve to still live. It's just interesting because the bears are the, they themselves are the ones who keep uh, reinforcing. Mm -hmm. They're like, no, we're animals. All right. We don't have souls. We're not like you. All right, you're weird, <laughs> and yeah. um, and even the omniscient narrator, right? Even in Will's chapter, they're all like, "So the humans didn't notice Will doing his cool invisible magic, but Yorick, who is not human and is an animal, mm-hmm. saw what he was doing and was like, interesting." So anyway, I will I'm say just... um, that like I find that interesting too because, uh, and I wonder if that's commentary in some aspect. I, I wonder if it's Pullman Pullmaning. Or if it's commentary on the aspect that, like, in Christianity, animals, and this chapter specifically, animals aren't looked at as being the same, and we'll talk about it as we go forward, as humans, right? Like, having souls like we do. So I know that's a big part of it, but it's just, like, he's making that point, you know? So, like, tie it together, Phil. I guess, guess, you know, if if they were, then cutting up someone's soul that much would matter. yeah, it would have a big difference, and you can't be like, yeah, I'm just gonna make more, like a like the liver, and yeah. So clearly, clearly that that's a difference. So, but anyways, <sighs> Panzerbjorn writes, and agreed. Yeah. So Mary thanks the wheeled person that gave her a lift, but realizes that she actually doesn't know what to call them yet. She she rests on the term friend. She's like, this is my friend. And when she says thank you, he imitates her and goes, Anku! And the Aww. others also repeat it and they just laugh at her. They're like, Anku! Anku. Anku. I love that. I think it's so uh, cute. And they just like, know. yeah, they repeat it. They're adorable. And throughout the next few days, she, she actually learns so much about them. She thinks that it feels like she's back yeah. in school again. And they learn about her, too. Her hands, her joints, knuckles, fingernails. Watching when she picks up her rucksack and how she eats. In return, they let her feel their trunks, which are flexible and strong enough to crush her head. Uh, And not only can they be used for both delicate and strong, dexterous tasks, but she notices they also use them to communicate. They move their trunk to, you know, modify sound. So each word, so words that sound like cha, for example, mean water when they sweep their trunk side to side. Yeah, I love this. It, it reminds me, you know, some languages they're like tonal or also like even even sign language, right? Like there's emphasis in how something is gesticulated um, can mean different things. And I love that combination between the verbal and the signing here. And that learning a new language is so, it's such a big part of this book series, right? We see it with Lyra and the Lithiometer in book one. We see it when it comes to the cave or even with the Yijing and... You know, Mary meeting and learning about the Malefa. It, it's a great parallel to Will meeting and learning about the Panzerbjorn. Mm-hmm. The the trunks of the Malefa, though, are curled up at the tip. Um, when they curl it at the tip and they say, Ch, that one means rain. Curled under um, means sadness. And it means shoots mm-hmm. of grass when flicked quickly to the left. And so Mary's like, I mean, clearly, we don't have a trunk, but she imitates this with her arm, trying to learn their language, and they realize what she's doing, and they're delighted with her, and I think that's what's so great. Like, Mary does a lot of effort to assimilate. She doesn't make the Malefa 
cater to her. She's being she she's learning their culture, and she's like, I'm here, and I should learn about them rather than imposing um, and exerting power over them. And they're also so welcoming of her too, right? Uh, they're not great at speaking human language. Mary has the ability to be the one who can meet them where they are more. They mostly speak in the wheeled people's language, but she does teach them to say anku, uh, grass, tree, sky, river, and even her name. Though they're like, this this is really hard to say. They're probably like, you're, you got a <laughs> stupid name, Mary. <laughs> like, this is a dumb name. You can't even roll around. No, they're very nice to her. <laughs> and they teach her their name, right? They call themselves the Mulefa as people, but each individual was a Zalif. She wasn't yet able to imitate the subtle differences for gender, but she does start her own dictionary and writes it all down. She realizes she should probably consult the Yijing at some point about being here. She's like, you know, I'm starting to have a little too much fun. Should I actually be here? And she asks it if she should, or if she should be continuing on her trip elsewhere. And it says, Keeping still so that restlessness dissolves, then, beyond the tumult, one can perceive the great laws. It went on, as a mountain keeps still within itself, thus a wise man does not permit his will to stray beyond his situation. She doesn't realize, but the Mulefa join in a circle around her, watching her, and they ask her permission to look at her oracle, watching and enjoying her handiwork. I loved this, also. I thought this was a really nice part from this. They, they like to watch her take her thumbs and do a over-and-over-thumbed opposite forefinger movement, which hmm. is what Ama was using at that exact same moment in Lyra's world as a charm to keep evil spirits away. Yes. I found that awesome and fascinating that like, ah, that's technically a charm that you're doing, Mary Malone. And, and that, that Ama's connected. doing it. Yeah. I love that I love that it says like actually it's happening at the same moment. That's mm -hmm. so interesting. And it is it is a fun movement to do, actually. Um but the the story brings attention to her thumbs, of course, and the dexterity of both people as a promise of ability in society. And it it's also worth noting that just a bit ago, they point out that, ah, oh, yes, the Panzerbjorn, Yorick, he has thumbs. That makes them cooler bears. And just like for the Malefa, they have their trunks. And that um, I do also think it's interesting that one of the motions that Mary likes to demonstrate and do. Uh, I don't know if any, maybe you readers have seen it, maybe you haven't, but I grew up doing it every now and then because I was bored. They did it also in one episode of The Adventures of Pete and Pete on Nickelodeon. I was like, hey, I know that thing that you do when you're bored of this is the church, this is the steeple, open the doors and see all the people. But they, he doesn't, Holman doesn't write about the open the doors and see all the people part. So I just thought it was funny that she does the motion for church and steeple uh, in this mm -hmm. series specifically. But no doors, no people. Yeah, only church and steeple, only the building and the institution. She doesn't nope. believe in that institution any longer, so it makes sense. Yeah, but that's part of the fun of the fingers, when you open your hands to show, open the doors and see all the people. But those doors aren't open to her anymore. That's true. So the Malefa don't get to see the cool hand motion. Sorry. Blame it on her. <laughs> They examine her yarrow stalks and her book, and she feels really reassured by her message as they do this. She's like, wow, I should continue doing this, is what that meant, and I should keep learning. 
They live monogamously in couplings, and their offspring have long childhoods, at least 10 years, and they could not yet manage the seed pod wheels themselves due to their size. So yes, they had training feet instead of training wheels. They had to move like grazers on four feet, a little clumsy, like they're in the wrong element. Like when cats walk on grass, you know? Just like, ah, what's Actually, that? no, I don't know. Oh, oh man, put a cat on grass that's never felt it before. It's funny as hell. Wow. I digress. You know, just pokey, just like, what's this? What's this? The huh. speed and power and grace of the adults was startling by contrast, and Mary saw how much a growing youngster must long for the day when the wheels would fit. She watched the oldest child one day go quietly to the storehouse, where a number of seed pods were kept, and try to fit his foreclaw into the central hole. But when he tried to stand up, he fell over at once, trapping himself, and the sound attracted an adult. The child struggled to get free, squeaking with anxiety, and Mary couldn't help but laughing at the sight. At the indignant parent and the guilty child who pulled himself out at the last minute and scampered away. I love this. I love this passage. It's just uh, showing their life and that they're just like a normal family, right? The, the kids yeah. trying to grow up too soon and getting caught in the act. Yeah. Or maybe like the kids being like, what if I tried to go into the driver's seat of the car? Mm, nope. It's kind of like that. Yeah, a similar feel, but uh, higher stakes with the car, I guess. You could hurt yourself, maybe. You could get hurt yourself here, right? Getting trapped under a wheel. Anyway, Mary notes that the seed pod wheels are of the most importance to their society, and they spend lots of time maintaining their wheels, cleaning it, repairing cracks. She remembers the oil that she found on her fingers from the first seed pod and gets permission to look closer at Azalee's claw. The claw seems to be thick with the fragrant oil, and she begins to wonder, so what did come first, the wheel or the claw, the rider or the tree, the chicken or the egg, but not that, because they don't have that in this world. That would be silly. And then Mary notices the third element of how this all comes together, the geology. The Malefa couldn't ride without having natural highways, so some of the mineral in the roads must be resistant to weathering or cracking, right? The the flows that we see that create natural rows, roads. So Mary begins to see the way everything is linked together, and it's managed by the Malefa. And I do I do think that this is smart and strong. You know, this comes back to what you were talking about, um, Chloe, about how it feels very much like a National Geographic thing, and I there's sort of a subtlety of like how this is talking about evolution right which uh at that time and probably still is i know was a big discussion of should evolution be taught in schools or not during the the publication of this book series i think that was a contemporary discussion there's always one of those i guess and i i will say i don't know that evolution so I think at the time, you know, this is a commentary. This is sort of a religious or social commentary. I will say that I don't know that evolution actually always works like this, my understanding. Granted, I, I haven't read as much, probably. Um, but natural selection doesn't always mean, like, that something, like, evolves to perfectly do this one thing. It means, like, it evolved. Mm -hmm. That happened to work and it didn't die out. <laughs> Great job. Great job, team. Yeah. And I do love, though... Uh along that same note of how like this also is showing us just like generations of Mulefa have existed, right? Yeah. That this road is packed down, uh, that this road, these natural highways, they've actually been created by these Mulefa, you know, like they wouldn't have formed had they not existed and been here to keep impacting the road and make their highways. 
Yeah. Absolutely. I I, I like that. That the landscape itself, right? Mm-hmm. What was Especially it? as we have the bears leaving their natural landscape, you know? Yeah. We see them, the Mulefa, chased out of theirs. Yeah, the geography shows reflects the people. Mm-hmm. And the Malefa knew every location, every herd, every grazer, every grass. That's that's actually impressive. Uh, Mary had watched them cull a herd of the grazers, dispatching them and breaking their necks quickly and efficiently, skinning and then buttering the animal. Yes, even trimming the fat and separating it. Then they hanged the meat up to dry and soaked the skins and tanned them. So I guess they're making what? Grazer charcuterie? Yep. Then, of course, the oldest child of this family is playing with a set of horns, pretending to be a grazer, making the other children laugh. And I'm like, whoa, you're just teaching that prejudice to your children? Respect your meat. You know what I mean? I was no. like, I was like, this is a little insensitive. So see, finally, a negative about the mulefa. No, I'm just kidding. I, I mean, it, I, I, was, I would pretend to I would wear cow horns and be like, yeah, I'm a cow. You don't deserve that beef. Mary is feasted very well with the mulefa that evening, complete with not only the fresh grazer meat, but also fresh fish they caught. Later, she watches them tie knots with their trunks to catch fish. For a moment, she thinks to herself of what an advantage she has, right? That she has two hands. She can tie knots all on her own with no one else. But then she thinks, wow, I can tie these all on my own with no one else. And she realizes... This isolates me from others that I don't need anyone else. It's not necessarily a good thing that I can do it all on my own. And she thinks perhaps all human beings were like that. Oh, I love that. I love that so much that she realizes human, to be human is to be lonely. It is a human condition. That's uh, that's what the AT field in Evangelion's about. Oh my god, it's true. That's literally what it's about. But yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I I love that. I love that um, ponderance of hers and it also kind of hits hard when you think about it while technically not human but in the context of baruch and balthamos yes yes sad hours um and from that moment on mary's like you know i'm just gonna share the task with a female zalif uh she has one that is in particular her friend and i just love that she's like all right you know what fuck it i want friends too i'm gonna just use one hand and we're gonna tie knots together like awesome the Malefa send out a group to check on the health of their seed pod trees, as well as bring back harvest. Mary is curious how this benefits the trees, but one day she gets to see it in action. A loud crack happens, and everyone suddenly halts surrounding someone with a broken wheel. They remount them with a spear, but they take the broken wheel back to the settlement carefully within a cloth. At the settlement, they open it and take out the seeds, which are a little pale oval as big as Mary's fingernail examining them. They explained that to crack the seeds, the seeds really need constant pounding, and that the seeds are very difficult to germinate without the constant pounding. And so without the malefa, the trees would just die. Yes, I love this. Again, the microcosm of the story, uh, that differencing Christianity of people and animals, right? Christianity thinking the differences were the only ones that see death coming. But obviously, as we're about to see, the Mulefa see death coming. They know what it means. Uh, we're not the only ones with intelligence and with a soul. We are, you know, humans think that we're the only higher beings made up of God's power under Christianity and under the authority. But Mary knows that that's not true. And she looks for the answers to show that to her every day that that's not true. And she can clearly see the Mulefas have 
souls, bigger souls than some of the people in the story from the Authority, giant beating hearts, and that humans aren't the only all-powerful species with control over land. In fact, like, the Mulafa have found a way to be sustainable with the land and work with the land mm-hmm. and, you know, respect the, the land they live upon. This is the whole story, but told through a microcosm of nature through the Mulafa with Father Gomez being paralleled in the Tuolapi. Absolutely. And I, you know, that that stands out so much, you know, what you were saying about how they've learned to live together uh, with the land and very sustainable in you know, following those chapters that feel very much like they're about climate change, right? And reaction to it. And I I don't know. I have, like, other thoughts regarding that. And, like, all these people have been thrown into chaos, as you said, because of that. And, I mean, wasn't worth it because of Asriel's, like, thing of, you know, his mission of we need to overthrow the authority, right? And And ascertain freedom but also it's like at what cost like why who gets to decide the cost that all these people get fucked because of that yeah i I don't know i guess it's still gonna happen right yeah and i think to me it, it is also kind of like a the justification of like yes all these people must suffer for this one greater good but like who get who actually suffers for it um yes it's very imperialist in my opinion but I really agree with that. I do. Um, especially because like we're we're watching the people that suffer right now and seeing like them fleeing from the climate change and see like yeah. people even the people with the bears fighting, like those people don't ha- really have anything to do with it other than they just are scared to give up their fuel because they think the bears are scary and gonna kill them. But it's really like, no, the bears were just driven from their home and if you had the kindness to reach out and say, let's get you on your way and help you, or to even yeah. ask, which they didn't. They live in fear because that's how they're told to live. Sheeple. Absolutely. The Absolutely. sheeple. The bears, everyone can just be friends with the bears and cuddle and hug them. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I, I, love, I think about the Pantherians. I love it. <laughs> I do think that's true. They're very, very warm and furry. I'm and sure. I love the passage that comes next. That each species depends on the other, and furthermore, it's the oil that made it possible. It was hard to understand, but they seemed to be saying the oil was the center of their thinking and feeling. That young ones didn't have the wisdom of their elders because they couldn't use the wheels and thus could absorb no oil in their claws. And that was when Mary began to see the connection between the Mulefa and the question that had occupied the past few years of her life. I thought it was fun that the story called it explicitly that it's the oil because you would think it, they meant it was the seed pods, but they're like, no, it's the oil. And it really comes back again to bears and their armor. Now it comes back again. It's another way, right? Mm-hmm. That we're reminded of the bears and the armor and how making your own armor is a rite of passage. Here it's the ability to be able to move and questions about the soul and learning. Yeah, that's great. That's really great. And I mean, obviously, Mary has done so much research into dark matter and matter, right? And dust. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's starting to see that connection. I think it's laid out pretty clearly here that that oil is connected to dust. So before Mary can think more about it, 
As they're repairing a hut, the settlement is suddenly attacked. Miri's watching from atop the roof, helping Adrid to its thatching, when suddenly she sees something in the distance, a fleet of tall white wings in the heat. The Zalif below calls to her, and she asks Miri what she sees, and Miri does the best to try and describe white sails without knowing the word for sails, and a tall who is her friend, calls her to come down, and she shouts to the other Malefa, Tualapi! And I kind of think it sucks that like they're called Tualapi because I think it's a really cute word. Tualapi! And it contrasts, maybe, to the time earlier mm-hmm. in these chapters that the bears were maybe attacking. You know, you, you brought this up again just now, attacking the human town, vice versa. Um... Because the Malefa seem to be, interestingly, a very pacifist society, right? They don't fight back against the Tuolapi. And it's interesting to me that all of this time, the Malefa have never developed a weapon or a defense system against the Tuolapi. They're just like, I don't know, fuck these birds. Yeah, and again, it's a total metaphor for what the church does, right? The the resource mm. warring happening with the bears in the last chapters. And the Tuolapi yeah. are definitely predators, again, but at the same time, like, the bears are seen as predators, so we don't know. Yeah. Uh, we just don't know. I mean, they obviously act like total assholes, as we're about to find out, right, though? Like, because by the time they arrive, they're totally in a disciplined, synchronized manner. It all moves super quickly. There's at least 40 birds mm-hmm. with super powerful legs and a super <sighs> swan-like neck and huge beaks the size of her forearm. And she reaches a towel just in time, scrambling on her back. They all get the fuck out. But the birds, they actually go and they attack the resources. They eat the meat, the food, the grain. They try to open the seed pods, but thankfully that's far beyond them. They're not advanced enough. And they finish up by smashing everything in sight, just like in A Bug's Life when the hoppers come. And then they shit on everything, dude. They straight up shit. They take a giant steaming turd on literally all the housing that they just ripped apart and resources they ripped apart. And the Mulefa return to their homes. They're anxious about the seed pods. They're full of sorrow, full of anger. Only two out of the 15 seed pods are left. Uh, The rest got pushed into the water and are flowing away. Mary spies some in the riverbed and ties a cord to herself, waiting out to get five of the seed pods back in full and feeling like she was able to finally do something useful. So they only have seven of 15. That's such a bummer. That's so much less. But it is nice that Mary did that. She she crossed worlds in a way. She swam across. Can yeah. the Mulefa not swim? It's a question I have. And yeah. I guess not because they have legs at their four corners, but the wheels probably don't help. I'd guess. I don't know. So we end the chapter with later that night, after a scanty meal of sweet roots, they told her why they had been so anxious about the wheels. There had once been a time when the seed pods were plentiful, and when the world was rich and full of life, and the Malefa lived with their trees in perpetual joy. But something bad had happened many years ago. Some virtue had gone out of the world, because despite every effort and all the love and attention the Malefa could give them, the wheel pod trees were dying no what dust it mean <laughs> what does what it dust mean? this mean i dust don't understand eliana I do dust you protest <sighs> I, i'm not i'm not really protesting i just wanted to say that <laughs> uh 
sidebar, uh, you know, I, I love that they they have a meal of sweet roots because Will eats yeah. beetroots earlier on. So there's your borscht? little parallel. Yeah, he has borscht, it- basically. Yeah, okay. And she's eating mulefa borscht. <laughs> she has me eating mulefa borscht. Wow. Though yeah, I will it's say a- it's a sweet root, you know, almost a, it could it be like a fruit, like eating fruit hmm. from a tree. I was thinking it would be like yams because it's like a sweet root, like a like a sweet mm-hmm. potato. Mm-hmm. Actually, a sweet root carrots. from the ground. Carrots are a sweet root, and so are beets. Technically, those are sweet. Yeah, that's People true. People use them for sugar. So I don't yeah. know. Um, so her and-, and Will were eating the same thing at the same time. Wow. And just like she was connected with Ama. Amazing. Yep. Wow. Well, I love that to keep our protagonists in mind here. The good guys. Yeah. It, there's just some great parallels between these chapters. You were talking about it earlier, right? Like, the wheelpod crisis um, and the lack of resources that are starting to happen and that that very much, you know, parallels with the Panzerbjorns losing their own resources and way of life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, it, it, I mean, for all intents and purposes... Girls Gone Canon hereby declares the Panzerborn are a people, if you didn't right. think that was a thing. I think we've said it already, but write it down, tattoo it. Yeah. And, you know, I guess, I guess, you know, canonically, maybe your armor's not your soul, I guess. Whatever. Fuck that plot point. <sighs> <laughs> well, this, of course, is the end of the three chapters in our main coverage. However, we will be doing a very, very quick round of discussion at the end here. So if you have not read the Books of Dust, the Outer Works novellas of Philip Pullman as well, please log off. I don't want to spoil you this week. And we will see you next month for our next episode, episode 19. Yes. So here's your chance to log off. Because we are about to start the discussion now three two one now bye (laughs) yes so i don't have a ton this week just because there's a lot of stuff we've talked about in the last few uh, episodes uh seed pod oil being related to the rose pod oil from the secret commonwealth do you think that feels more prominent now it does it does feel pretty prominent feels very much so especially because the emphasis again it's on the oil not on the not on the pods And that he's, like, implying it's part of their advancing, right? Like, part of the way that they've been able to evolve to live and sustain and provide for themselves is due to this seed pot oil, which, I mean, that's exactly how it's described for Mariella, Mariette, I forget her name, I don't know why I forget her name, but Lyra's friend with the Rose Garden, you know, that's, roses were sustainability and life for her family, and we learned that they're pretty important around the world. Yeah, and provide sight, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A yeah. social lubricant, maybe. Hmm. Oh, my God. Wow, sexy. Okay, well, speaking of dust it- making. Oh. I was just oh, thinking, different like- lubricant. Yeah, that's socially. No. Not- Sorry, I thought you meant making- physical in my head. Oh, no, I just meant how I'm, <laughs> how I'm socially awkward. <laughs> oh, sounds like you need some seed pot oil. I could use it. Seems does fun. make me think, like, is it CBD oil? Anyways. <laughs> Definitely some Lavelle Sauvage vibes with the flooding and the mangy yes. dogs and all that. Malcolm saw 
kind of similar to that through the fogs, right? When they were in the, the yeah. maze, the fairy area. Yeah. It was so it was so interesting, yeah, to really see how the flood comes through. That great great flood vibes. And here it's much more, you know, like oh shit's fucked, right? Like not cleansing in the evil world. Uh, more yeah. like the ramifications of it, whereas the La Belle Sauvage one was very much hearkening that. Yeah, and it does make me feel now on like look back to our La Belle Sauvage covering that there definitely was a great convulsion in that story as well. Yeah. Uh, we talked about how it could have been something shaking the secret commonwealth from the sea, but uh, I mean, maybe it was much more. Maybe the worlds were torn apart then, too. I mean, yeah, it seems like it. We saw the worlds kind of, yeah, torn apart in terms of the fairy world, the magical world, and this one. And it's kind of funny because at that point, right, in La Belle Sauvage, the flood is carrying Lyra and carrying her to safety. Mm-hmm. And this time, the flood is carrying people to go save Lyra. They're the ones going to her. And what did we just hear from Father Semyon about? John's, uh, you know, John's revelation here about the waters flowing backwards. And I mean, the river very much, you know, this time this river in in La Belle Sauvage, Lyra's baby Moses, right on the on the river being carried to safety. And I mean, that that carries through a little bit here, too. But yeah, well, the final thing I will bring up today on our discussion before we go, before we leave you all is how much foreshadowing of love and loss there is to come for Will and Lyra that I didn't necessarily understand in my very first read-through of the book, but now I want to cry every single chapter, Uh, whether it's the Emily Dickinson poem, whether it's Balthamos throwing himself into the fucking sky, down onto the ground, into the sky again, sobbing. Uh, I just can only think that Lyra and Will have had these very very feelings apart from each other, wanting to throw themselves into the sky to just even feel the stardust of one another once more. So, that's that's how I'm feeling. It's so sad. It's so sad. So bittersweet. It's bittersweet because, like, they save shit and they bring dust back and and the trees can grow again, the seed pods can, can grow again for now. But at what cost? At what cost? Yeah. And they choose not to do it, right? Because the the whole point is about people must live, humans must live mm-hmm. to make more dust, to save not yes. only all of the worlds, but also themselves. And yet it's interesting that Balthamos does not do that, right? I, I Now that I think about it at first, I was like, yeah, Baruch is part of that trope, unfortunately, of kill your gaze. This was also a very, this was published at a different time where people weren't mm-hmm. really interrogating that. Um, and I do think, again, it was pretty groundbreaking to have gay characters in a children's slash young adult novel at that time. And, like, explicitly so. And Balthamos doesn't do it, right? Like, he, the grief consumes him. And unlike how Will and Lyra must keep going on, Balthamos dies by the end. He, he, granted, it's in service of the greater war and good to protect Will and Lyra, but he just can't hold it together. And at least when, when he does, he, his atoms can go join Baruch's. And that's what I was wondering, like, is he there looking for atoms of Baruch? 
<sighs> well, that's about all the time I have to be depressed this week. I need to go seek some serotonin. Hope for a prey for a, a speck of dopamine across my sky. Stardust dopamine. So thanks, Eliana. Thanks for humoring me. Oh, you're yeah? welcome. Anytime. Anytime. I'm here. I'm ready to get sad. <sighs> Everyone, thank you so much for listening. We will be back next month at the end of September with episode 19 of the Amber Spyglass. Until then, make sure that you are following us over on social media at Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N, on Twitter for the latest updates, or feel free to send us a DM or even a tweet with your thoughts about the episode. Or if you'd like to send us something more private, you can send us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. We love emails. We love chatting with you and just uh, hearing what's up and what your take was on the story during this. Yeah, and of course, our Historic Materials episodes come out once a month. If you would like to keep up with next month's episode, you can find us and subscribe. So it comes right to you on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon Podcasts, Podbean, where these are all hosted, Outcast, Acast, iHeartRadio. And I don't think I did as many as last time. I think that's good enough. You can Google it. It'll be there. We and are all over the place, I promise. All everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. Everywhere. Just like all of the molecules of Baruch's being. Anyways, and if those aren't enough for you, you can check us out at patreon.com, where you will get a private RSS feed. All patrons get a private RSS feed, and you'll get this straight to that feed. Patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. We will have an Ella Enchanted episode out this month for all patrons in the Stranger Tier and above, and our Discord happy hour and brunch for Thunder Tier patrons and above will be taking place this Saturday, August 28th, 2021. Uh, so look for more details over there at Patreon. Absolutely. Well, thank you everyone for joining us this month in our journey through even more worlds and coming back to the Panzerbjorn. Uh, I we didn't read any your I don't think we read any your quotes this time but you know <sighs> hey next time next episode we will get a good Eliana roar but until yeah. then until then I've been one of your hosts Eliana and I've been one of your hosts Chloe see you next time bye wow I forgot I forgot how to close <laughs> forgetting everything